0: Lines. live from the divided states of america in the belly of the beast here in washington dc good morning you are listening to fault lines on radio sputnik thank you for joining us out there on rumble on 105.5 fm and 1390 a.m here in the dc metro we're also in kansas city at 11:40 a.m 102.9 fm and 104.7 fm on that radio dial i am the vixen of veritas the thrilla in manila chan alongside guest co-host this week malik abdul the durag conservative? no you are the atomic maga conservative this week (laughs) malik abdul and the tagless reese everson that that's becoming her tag (laughs) this is the show that dares to go there this is fault lines reese have you come up with a tagline no.
1: <laughs> Come on. We're already in
0: Wednesday. You only have a few more days of guest
2: co hosting. I agree, but you know, I just. You just can't sum me up in words.
1: <laughs> well, you're going to have to get a tagline. Okay. <laughs> We're going to have to sum you up. We're going to have to sum words. you up. Exactly.
0: In so many words. <laughs> in so many words.
1: Things that cannot be explained will be explained in short order.
0: Or else you might get stuck with the tagline.
1: that <laughs> the That actually list. may be it.
0: That might actually be it. Well, with that, let's head over to some headlines because a lot of stuff going on today. Uh, anything that you guys want to talk about on the other side of the headlines after the break, for our open mic? Other than Hillary Clinton is starting to do her her press
1: rounds. Nora O'Donnell. Uh-huh. Oh, is it girthy? Yeah. No. Girthy. Not girthy. No, oh, no, no. It's too early she in the said morning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my word! All right. I'll let these two decide on what we should talk about at the open mic in just a few minutes here. So let's head over to some headlines. All right, first up in domestic news, the FBI agents who searched former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate back in August, seized a document shedding light on a foreign government's military defenses and their nuclear capabilities. That's according to the Washington Post. Now, according to government court filings cited by the outlet, the FBI has recovered more than 300 classified documents from Mar-a-Lago, 184 in a set of those 15 boxes now sent to the National Archives and Records Administration earlier in January with 38 more handed over by a Trump lawyer to investigators back in June. Now, the court approved FBI raid back on August 8th seized a batch of more than 100 additional documents, which purportedly contained the information about a foreign government's nuclear defense readiness. Sources are apparently revealing to the WAPO. Then with most of Massachusetts being a solidly blue state, Many of the elections are a foregone conclusion, I think, for a lot of people, which makes them, which makes the primary elections there probably pretty significant. Now, despite Massachusetts' blue leanings, the state's current governor is actually a Republican. And they've had this uh, before where most of the local state legislatures, l- legislators are Democrats. And, you know, there was a Scott Brown. He was a Republican governor. Um, and, of course, Mitt Romney. Uh, Now, the state's current governor is a Republican, and 2012 GOP presidential candidate Mitt Romney preceded him, uh, as we might recall, so Republicans can win some elections in Massachusetts. So speaking of elections for governor, Attorney General Mara Healy secured the Democratic nomination for that top office in the state. She was running unopposed, though Sonia Chang-Diaz was still on the ballot because she dropped out too late to get her name deleted before it went to print. Now, despite officially dropping out, Chang Diaz still received about 15% of the vote at press time, likely from early voting. So if Healy wins the general election, she will become the first elected female governor of Massachusetts. James Swift was once the acting governor from 2001 to 2003 after taking over for Paul Salucci, but she was not officially elected to that position. Keeley is going to face off against Jeff Deal, a former state representative who was endorsed by former President Donald Trump. Deal beat his rival Dottie with 56.3 percent of the vote, but only 35 percent of reporting at the time this went to press now former u.s secretary of state you know and love her <laughs> 2016 democratic presidential candidate or nominee rather hillary clinton said in an interview that she will not she will not run again for president of the united states so tomorrow, if you were listening what did i tell you what did i tell you buddy She's not running. She's not feeling well. Well, that's that's what my assertion is. She didn't say that in this interview. She said, no, no. That's her talking to CBS with Nora O'Donnell. When asked if she would run for president again, however, Clinton promised to do everything she can to ensure the U.S. has a president who, she says, respects democracy, the rule of law, and upholds U.S. institutions. Now, should former President Trump run again for president and become the Republican nominee, Ms. Clinton said he would need to be defeated. Clinton added that the Republican Party needs to grow a backbone and stand up to Trump. Then over to my home state, California, their power grid operator has declared a state of energy emergency, warning that it may institute rolling blackouts to curb a surge in demand, which has hit all-time record highs as locals crank up the A.C. to escape an unprecedented heat wave this past week. The California Independent System Operator, or ISO, issued a Level 3 emergency alert Tuesday night saying electricity supplies were beginning to, quote, run low in the face of record heat and demand and that there could be outages. Quote, If needed, ISO could order utilities to begin rotating power outages to maintain stability of the electric grid, the agency said, adding that Tuesday's peak electricity demand was expected to exceed 52,000 megawatts and, quote, a new historic all-time high for the grid. The ISO went on to explain that Contained power outages will help to maintain reliability and avoid cascading blackouts, ensuring the system doesn't collapse into uncontrolled, unplanned power failures. Then to international news, newly minted UK Conservative Party leader and the newest prime minister, Liz Truss, broke with tradition Tuesday. Her telephone call with her U.S. counterpart, Joe Biden, came after her very first call being made to Ukraine to talk to one Volodymyr Zelensky. And Ms. Truss, long known as a proponent of her predecessor, Boris Johnson's very firm anti-Russia stance, had vowed repeatedly during the Tory leadership campaign that after gaining keys to Number 10 Downing Street, that she would start off by pledging Britain's support for Ukraine. Yeah, so forget, you know, fixing the price issues with energy, forget fixing whatever is wrong with your own country. Go pledge your love and support to a foreign country. She said, quote, "The Prime Minister spoke to the President of Ukraine. Excuse me, this is her press office. The Prime Minister spoke to the President of Ukraine Volodymyr Zelensky this evening." to reiterate the United Kingdom's steadfast support for Ukraine's freedom and democracy. In her first call with a counterpart since becoming prime minister, she reiterated to the Ukrainian leader that he had her full backing and Ukraine could depend on the UK's assistance for the long term. That's coming out of a Downing Street spokeswoman. Now, President Zelensky also issued an invitation or Liz Truss, to visit Kiev, which the spokeswoman said that the prime minister was delighted to accept. Then G7 countries have got another thing coming. If they think they can, quote, dictate energy prices to Russia via a price cap, says Russian President Vladimir Putin, quote, you asked about capping prices for our energy resources. This is an absolutely stupid decision. If someone tries to implement it, it will not lead to anything good for those who do so. Vladimir Putin said that during a panel discussion at the Eastern Economic Forum in Vladivostok on Wednesday. Now commenting on the energy crisis being experienced by European countries, the Russian president emphasized, quote, "It's impossible to impair objective economic laws. Everything will come back. On those who do so like a boomerang now restrictions will only lead to new supply imbalances he says and price hikes stressing that a very expensive energy bill could be coming your way soon folks then the atomic the international atomic energy agency iaea has called for an end to all military activity around the zaporizhia nuclear power plant and insisted that shelling in that area has to stop. The agency's report on the situation in Ukraine published last night stopped short of identifying the culprits targeting the Russian-held facility. "Quote: Any military action such as shelling within or in the vicinity of a nuclear facility has the potential to cause an unacceptable radiological consequence. The IAEA report said, adding that the what they call the seven pillars of nuclear safety have all been compromised at Zaporoza. Now, the quote, the IAEA recommends that shelling on the site and its vicinity should be stopped immediately to avoid any further damages to the plant and associated facilities for the safety of the operating staff and to maintain the physical integrity to support safe and secure operation adding that this would require agreements by all relevant parties to the establishment of a nuclear safety and security protection zone around the ZNPP. Now, Zaporozhye is Europe's largest nuclear power plant, along with the nearby city of Energodar. It has been under Russian control since early March. Artillery, drone, and rocket attacks began in July, damaging cooling systems, power lines, and other facilities. Then here, the Pentagon is prepared to target China's core logistical support should it show aggression toward Taiwan, says U.S. General and Deputy Chief of Staff for Air Force Futures Clinton Highnote. This is his name, Clinton Highnote. No, I wasn't referring to uh, Hillary Clinton. Now, High Note warned during an Atlantic Council panel of the future of air warfare just yesterday. He says, quote, We're going to make it really, really hard to do offensive maneuvers against our friends, and I would hope that our potential adversary, China, might think about that if they are contemplating the difficulty of getting across a 90-mile straight and going against Taiwan. I would hope they would realize we're not just going to let their logistics flow. Hmm. Sounds like fighting words to me. Now, the general had returned to the subject of a potential war with China after he was asked about the, quote, one lesson. He hoped the U.S. military might have taken out of the Ukraine war, which was to focus on the event held by the think tanks. GoCroft Center for Strategy and Security. He also floated the threat of Taiwan's invasion to illustrate how the U.S. strategic approach needed to focus on maintaining the current balance of power rather than overthrowing or upsetting its centers. Then on this day in history, back in 1901, the Boxer Rebellion in the Qing Dynasty, that is obviously modern-day China, officially ends with the signing of the Boxer Protocol. Back in 1921, in Atlantic City, New Jersey, the very first Miss America pageant, back then it was a two-day thing, the first Miss America took place. Back in 1953, Nikita Khrushchev is elected the first secretary of the Communist Party of then-Soviet Union. Oh, sad day. Back in 1996, rapper actor Tupac Shakur fatally shot in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas, Nevada. He succumbed to his injuries six days later. And this day, last year in 2021, Bitcoin becomes legal tender in El Salvador. Very progressive. That's going to do it for your headlines this Wednesday, September 7th. You are listening to Fault Lines. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, uh, hopefully I've assigned these to Uh, an opportunity to come up with what they want to talk about for open mic Uh, so sit tight we'll be right back after this you're listening to Fault Lines with Chan Abdul and Everson
3: Fault Lines Fault Lines Welcome
0: back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined with guest co-host this week, Malik Abdul and Reese Everson. Uh, now I'm going to go with ladies first. What is on the top of your mind? What news subject is making you, I don't know, worry
2: this week? It's not even worry, but Manila, my heart goes out this morning. I mean, I we didn't, I didn't think about it yesterday, um, as none of us have school-aged children, but. Um, Yesterday was the first day of school uh, for—back to school for the kids in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, Most of Texas has been back to school for a few weeks. But uh, as you may, you know, remember, there was a shooting in Texas that killed, um, I believe, 19 students and two teachers. Um, A gunman just, you know, walked into an elementary school and opened fire on children, babies. And— These are like third graders, yeah, and and these are, you know, itty-bitty babies. And so it, it, yesterday being their first day back, it was just that's important that we send out our, you know, our thoughts, our prayers, our encouragement, our support, because that's not something a child is even, you
0: know, basically I, I, able to deal with. How do you, I mean, you how know. does an adult process that? But it seems really odd to me that this is like an American phenomenon. Yes, this kind of school shootings, in particular, mm-hmm. it's an American phenomenon. Because yeah. you don't, you don't hear. We're not the only country with guns. We're not well, the we're, only country with wackos.
1: I think we're so. probably one of. The, well, maybe maybe there are others, but I think as far as our Constitution and our Second Amendment rights, like all of that is folded here, folded in the discussion here in ways that I don't think is exists in other um, countries. I think you the United States is pretty um on like on its own when it comes to like our gun laws and our support for gun laws because people you they will go to bat with you over uh the right to bear arms. And so it's it is definitely a very um, you know, sad thing that happens all around the country, but particularly now that we know what happened, you know, because initially our heart our hearts are still there, but there were things that we found out after the fact. Just the total failure in the policing that makes oh, it even more tragic. And I don't think Absolutely. that they are they waited ninety
2: minutes. Yeah, of, there was a ninety minute uh, wait time before anyone went into the school to actually attack them, and there were police gu- uh, officers, buffoonery guards happening on the on the scene. Who did not respond? Who stood there and didn't want to risk their lives, their own um, lives? Which and, that's and your so job. now yeah. there's been an inspector at OIG, Office of Inspector General, investigation into those police officers for not going in. Well, they finally
0: fired the the chief. The chief, mm-hmm. yeah. It took it was a like long a time. no
1: confidence vote or something. They ended up getting rid of him. But you know, it was a total breakdown in communication. That was awful. Um, you had so many officers standing there, not just. You had Border Patrol officers. You had the regular local officers. You had the officers in surrounding jurisdictions, the chain of command, like everything. Everything that could have went wrong, went wrong. You were
0: right, because literally... It was just the the perfect day of the perfect storm. Like, there was a teacher that apparently accidentally left the door unlocked because she had gone out to her car for something and came back in, left that door unlocked because we saw the gunman go around the building looking yep. for access. He found the one door, right? Like, what are the chances on that, on that day that she forgets something, goes to the car, comes back in, forgets to turn the key and lock it? She, you know, like, there, there's another issue about the the cops thought that she had locked her her classroom in, right? When in reality, the door was actually unlocked to the classroom because that was one of the things the police said. Oh, we have to wait for the building maintenance. Yeah, to get a key. To get a key, which wh- what?
1: Yeah, it was a it what? was a total breakdown. And I, and I think the guy everywhere. had he had he had shot his grandmother. Yes. Was it his grandmother that he shot? Can you believe? Fortunately, that? You fortunately, fortunately you believe that? she survived. So it was definitely it was a tra- all of these shoot every shooting is tragic. Yes, but with babies,
2: this is
0: killer. This is I mean, something so, so these aren't like
2: people. his classmates. These aren't people right. that could be accused of teasing him right or bullying right. him. They're, these are babies. These are mm-hmm. babies. That They're like nine-year-old babies. That, that There's no reason for this. And so now these kids, their first day back, and a lot of them are trying to process it. One, um, if, if I don't know if you've seen this, but they've got training that they now do of how to cover and protect yourself and how to take a mat. There's a supposedly bulletproof
0: mat. That oh, there's they all now kinds of. In the classroom. There's gun. There's um, sorry, bulletproof backpacks that are sold yeah, in the market for that. children, yeah. for kids, like Kevlar backpacks. And, like, are then, you kidding me? They
2: got these mats that they put in the classroom and they do these exercises. So when I was a little girl, the most we had to do an exercise for was the fire drill, and you know to stop, mm-hmm. drop, and roll, yeah. and all that good if you stuff. You catch fire, you know. What, these are you, the you basics. Know, only you can prevent forest fire. That's right. And that sort of stuff that sticks with you for a lifetime. But these kids, are, this generation of children, will. Be told to put the mat over your head, fold it, and sit still and pretend that you're not breathing. And if someone right. comes in and they're shooting, oh, lay
0: still and pretend that you've already been hit. I mean, oh, my this God. is this well, is one of the little girls that children, survived. She literally, a, a little nine year old girl, had the wherewithal to to per, to, yes. to smatter blood of her mm-hmm. dead friend across her and lay like she was dead. What nine year old has the wherewithal that. to think that? Can Why you would imagine you imagine the to trauma? Know that?
1: Like and the so, trauma that, that they have to endure for years, because this isn't just a this one day. is forever. Day, no, no, that little forever.
2: girl that survived. So, 100 of the students have signed up for online learning. I don't Some blame of them, them. Have transferred into uh, private school. But here's the thing you know, we, we've seen from COVID uh, during the lockdowns. Online learning is not the answer for a lot of child, students. No, right. Some yeah, kids don't some. learn that way and aren't capable. And then most of them, you know, they the ones who have parents who have to go to work and stuff like that, they can't go. Right. There's no they it work home. For every child. So then the other kids that are at home are like, I want to go be with my friends. I don't want to be here by myself. And so you've got kids who are, you know, literally uh, going through this trauma, and it's their first day back. Um, a like, lot of why them, is this
0: an American thing? Mm. What like why we don't hear about these mass shootings in I don't know name any any place Europe we don't hear about it just north in Canada we don't hear about it just south of us in Mexico I mean they got guns they got kids in school in Mexico I mean I don't know if people like to think of you know Mexico as either an exotic vacation getaway. Or, or like some gangland right a home of cartel yeah. gangland but if there's normal functioning big cities mexico city i mean mm-hmm. same thing right it's a big thriving metropolis people got guns there people got kids in school there but we don't seem to have this problem and all the us focuses on is oh look at mexico they got cartel problems
1: Look elsewhere.
0: Yeah, uh, look at this shiny thing over there.
2: In Liverpool, there was a young girl that was that was killed, and her mother's been all over the news, you know, asking for this killer to come forward. And and he and she was shot. um, Oh, the little yeah by a mass gunman who came into her house. And so So weird. It's so. But when there's gun violence in other countries, it's like, oh my god, you have a gun. It's like I know. And and they're like, get these guns off the streets.
0: And so it's like a call for it now, and, and they're really. But see, pushing that's guns. just it, though. That's the argument, right? Is then only the bad guys have the guns? Mm-hmm. That is the American argument, and and I'm not saying it's a bad one. You know, I'm very I'm pro Second Amendment. You know, uh, Bobby Patillo. Oh, listen, I'm Bob all is about way... a good trip to the gun range. <laughs> yeah, Bob. Bob is is a, as blue as they come, but Robert Patillo, mm-hmm. very two way well, Democrat. From the South. And, and that's, I
2: mean, you got to keep in mind a lot of people of the South are landowners and things like that. When you grow up and you're on a farm, on a plantation, you could call the police and, and not get a hell of a there,
1: there aren't people who grew up in plantations that are probably still alive. I mean, not even... But, but I, I get point. Atta- your... No, but I, I, I mean farms or, no, or get your large point. tracts of land.
2: <laughs> right. I don't mean slave plantations. I mean, like, farm plants. Like, they literally... You could call and the next house is miles down. Right, right. And right. so if someone comes to your door to attack, you literally are it's your just own you. security system yeah okay. well,
1: i grew I grew up obviously, I'm from Mississippi, and I grew up around guns. So I'm they were a part of our culture where you know, I started hunting probably maybe nine years old or wow. something like that. So I can actually it,
2: envision that go ahead, yeah, yeah, I did yeah. Some of so that too. you know,
1: I remember my grandfather riding around. He had a gun rack in the back of his truck, and that's where he would put his his shotgun when we would get ready to go hunt, you know, go hunting or whatever. So it's definitely part of the culture. We lived in the city itself. So in Jackson, yeah, we lived in the city. So, but it was so commonplace. Whether you were in the city, whether you were in more rural parts, gun culture, you know. And I should say that there was no such thing as irresponsible gun use as it is now. Like a lot of the people that you see on the ground now, you know, they're they don't have you know they have illegal guns and then they don't even use them. You see videos of guys just shooting as if they're on Call of Duty or something. I know, no that's type so of, dumb. yeah, no type of training or any of that. So we definitely do have a problem, not just with schools, but just our. The um,
0: respect for the firearm itself. Yeah,
1: like it's a real like thing. A, yeah,
0: it is a real, it it's is not a real thing. It's not for play.
1: It's not a video game.
2: Right. So there, there's a little bit of that. So um, we, oh, I was going to say really quick. So we've got kids who are now in on their phone. And they have to check in. They're like second and third graders. And so at certain points in the day, they're allowed to take their phone out and text their parents and say, I'm OK. I'm okay.
4: Ugh. wow.
0: Now, before we we had to break, we got a couple of minutes, Malik. There was something else
1: on your mind. Oh, well, mine is just very quickly. Did you see the media meltdown after the judge? Um, it, essentially, this was, I guess, the first day of major major news outside of yesterday um, where they were talking about the judge approving the special master. I mean, if you turned on like MSNBC, the media's mad. See, I don't
0: watch oh
1: the my media. goodness, they were what's that guy, Eli Mistel or something? You know, they went into attacking the judges because these were Trump appointed oh, Trump wow. judges, and they don't is a care about for law. Donald Trump. Yeah, Whoa. I mean, it's just you know they these people who were so concerned about democracy are now attacking the courts. For approving a special master, which doesn't change anything. So didn't we
0: already see attacking the court with SCOTUS?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it, it was allowable then. The same people, the same woke people, they have no problem now attacking it because this judge was appointed by Donald Trump. So go figure.
0: So they think she is showing favoritism? Yes, absolutely. That she can't, she's... She can't be impartial. She can't be impartial, right. Well, you
1: know, no judges. No one thinks, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, no one thinks that you can be impartial when you do something that they disagree with. So Republicans said about the liberal justices, um, Democrats said about the conservative justices. So, I don't know.
0: Is impartiality impossible? No. I don't believe it is. No. But I will
2: say that I've seen a level of corruption in courtrooms
0: oh, me too. across the United States that is oh, disturbing. me too. Our legal system is far, far from imperfect. But just because, perfect. I mean, oh, right, far from perfect. Sorry, yes, very imperfect. Um, but, you know, what's, why are y'all scared to have a third party look is all I have to say, right? If the argument is you got nothing to hide, then it shouldn't be a problem. DOJ, talking to you. All right. Uh, let's leave that right there. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to talk some more social problems happening across the United States. We've got Jackson, uh, they Jackson, Mississippi, Malik's hometown. They've got water back, but they're still on the boil water measures. Still passing out bottled water, as well as more locally here in this D DMC or DMV metro. Um, there is a teen curfew that is starting this weekend because of a spike in specifically violent crime um, that is impacting teenagers around this area that's more than doubled, the arrests of teenagers in this area have more than doubled around this time last year. We're up to almost 500 arrests and we just wrapped up the summer. Uh, And that's just in PG County alone, Prince George's County. Uh, So we're gonna be talking about that and a lot more. Coming up right after this, we're going to talk to Reverend Gregory Seal Livingston. Sit tight. You're listening to Fault Lines. We'll be right back.
3: Fault Lines. Fault Lines.
0: Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined this week with guest co host Malik Abdul and M. Reese Everson. Uh, we are heading over to talk about some more domestic issues within uh, different cities across this country. Uh, so with that, we want to bring in the good reverend Gregory Seal Livingston. He is an ordained minister, pastor, preacher, civil rights and community leader in New York City. He is also the founder and president of Equinomics Global. Reverend, good to have you with us. Thank you for being here.
5: Dr. Chan, it is always my pleasure. and Always have an exciting time. And your guest hosts, they are simply off the hook. It should be a very interesting segment.
0: It should be. Thank you for that. Now, whenever we have you on, we're always talking about some pretty sad, depressing domestic issues, community issues. But I, I got to say, at least the voice that you have soothes the soul a little bit. So I feel a little a little better after we talk to you about it. Um, but first, let, let's kick off the conversation with, with the issue of the Jackson, Mississippi water crisis. Um, you and I have actually, over the years, talked about several water crises. Uh, we've talked about Flint and um, water rights with Native Americans. We've talked about a lot of water issues. Now, over to Jackson. This is actually Malik's hometown. So I'm, I want Malik to kind of lead this conversation.
1: Oh, good morning, Reverend. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Good, thank you, Brother Abdul. Good morning to you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Actually, one of the first things that I wanted to talk about, um, if you listen to media, and as you can imagine, I always tell people that Mississippi never trends unless it's something that's gone bad. Um, No one ever pays attention to it outside of that. Um, But I'm, I'm glad that people are now focusing on what's happening in Jackson. But as someone a native of Jackson, what I know is that this isn't something that just started this year. It isn't something that just started Um, 10 years ago, Jackson has many of the same old, um, pipes through the city that they've had, um, probably for the past hundred or so years. And so we know that infrastructure all around the country, there's a lot of issues with delayed maintenance or, or deferred maintenance. Maybe that's what it's called. Um, but particularly in Jackson. There is a combination of issues that just can't be easily explained between a Republican or Democrat or um, not enough funding or here and there. There are a number of things. And I know just talking to my mother, uh, many people down there, they're saying we don't care about the politics about it. I would like to be able to brush my teeth without boiling the water because they're still under a boiling water advisory. Um, What are you hearing down there on the ground?
5: Well, let me just first say this, and Malik. You know, I don't know how old you are, but as a Jackson native, you understand things about uh, our country that you just were born into. Uh, my dad was a pastor in Chicago, and our church mother, in that tradition, Black church tradition, uh, was Meggar Evers' sister, okay, and civil rights leader. And so, merrily would come, Medgar's, you know, widow and, and the like. And but BB King on Medgar's birthday. I don't know if you're familiar with this, Malik but he would have a birthday celebration for Megar. on Friday. It would be a big gospel concert. And then on Saturday, B.B. would have a big outdoor blues concert to honor Megar. And so then Medgar's brother, Charles, right? And so then I remember I met a lot of people. Johnny Dupree was the, uh, at one point was the mayor of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I went down to Mississippi because he decided to run for governor. And had he won for governor, he would have been the first black person, right, to win a statewide office since Reconstruction. And so just even looking at that kind of stat and the things I was able to learn, because Charles introduced me to everybody and it was just an incredible time, uh, it, it is, there is the whole idea of political will, there is culture, because what we understand is that the law and culture don't always track. You can change the law and not change people's hearts. So when you have what seems to be something in terms of uh, regressive ideologies, in terms of infrastructure and things of that nature, or look, we're not going to deal with that. I, I, I guess what I'm saying, Malik, you know, is that Mississippi, you know, which is an incredible state. A lot of incredible people have come from there and done incredible things, but they had to do it against incredible odds. You know, it, it, it's, it's just the fight in Mississippi has never stopped. I mean, forgive me. I forget the date. Uh, when, uh, was in 1995 when, when the state books, the Mississippi in terms of slavery finally said, okay, slavery is, you know, against the law, you know, I mean, come on everybody. I was down in Mississippi as well, uh, when Johnny Dupree was running for governor. And so, you know, we, we were working. And so I saw some things that I didn't even see in Chicago, Illinois, you know, growing up there or in New York here now, you know, that they, at this one black area where people were voting the polls, the police, the police. Has stationed themselves at the legal boundary of the poll, right, where you're not supposed to bring in certain materials and things, and they had signs up saying fingerprinting inside. Well, when the police have a sign up in a black neighborhood, in a challenged neighborhood, uh, in a a neighborhood where people have uh, not had access to the legitimate economy, they have to create illegitimate economies and all these kind of things, when you put up fingerprinting inside about voting, they're not going to go. You know, they're not going to even think about it or say to anyone, you know, can I vote? They're just going to avoid it altogether. And this was, uh, what, 2013, 2014, when this was happening. And I happened to be on the radio at the same time talking. And I, and I told the folk on the radio what was happening. And, and it was unbelievable. And so, again, I don't know how old you are, Malik, but like your mom You know she got stories. And Big Mama, you know they got stories, too, that the country and the world needs to hear because many folk would not believe the the regressiveness that exists in many of these places. And and I always say this, you know, uh, racism, white supremacy, all that, you know, these things have not always existed, but the human greed for power has. And so this is is essentially about power and advantage and about haves and have-nots. And so this, 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 I've over-talked. So let me hush for a moment and, and, and hear from you guys.
0: No, not at all, Rev. I mean, would you say that this was a problem? Um, I, I don't want to blame the residents and the, the victims of this water crisis in Jackson, but is it a problem at the polls in Jackson that they elected the wrong officials to lead them?
5: Well, I, I think that it's, it's a, a, a double-edged sword. I think that it's a, uh, both-and and not an either-or, because when you look at, you know, it's it hasn't been that long that we've had, uh, you know, the Voting Rights uh, Act and the Civil Rights Act and all these things. And we've had civil rights acts in 1964, 1875, 1866. You know, none of this is new in terms of what we have to do. And always, those acts, like in 1866 and 1875, were enacted because the Ku Klux Klan was formed in 1865 by Nathan, you know, uh, Forrest, uh, Bedford Forrest, whatever his name was. And so there were Confederate sympathizers that were attacking the free black slaves, the free blacks and everything. And so these uh, acts were enacted to offer protection for folk. And so then when you talk about the Civil Rights Movement, all the time people get caught up, or they misunderstand the civil rights movement, Thurgood Marshall, Martin King, all these people, they were going at the law. They said, look, we can't legislate morality, but we can moralize the legislation. And so in terms of what happens with those who we elect to leadership, uh, there are other forces always at play trying to keep things to their advantage. We don't cry any kind of victimology here at all. But we what we have to learn to continue to do is to fight for what you have, what you need, what you want, what your community has to have. And so but and so part of the the task of those who want otherwise is to, you know, to to basically dumb down, if you will, the electorate and to get people to say that voting doesn't work. Why vote? It doesn't mean anything. Well those are all strategies and tactics. And once you can kind of work your way through people's emotions, because then you can say, if you can get to them and say no this is why you need to vote it's mathematical here that's why we weren't allowed to vote cuz it's mathematical you know and when we understand the math of this and we also continue to fight because it's a fight on many fronts we have to fight those that we have to fight for what we want and to get the right people in office because if you want to change the laws you got to change the people that make them and so we have to continue to organize to press to talk, to communicate, and, 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 and it, just what you guys are doing here, what we're doing here. This is important, because somebody's hearing this who had thought nothing about this. They were just going to work every day or doing whatever, and now they realize that I'm a citizen, not a subject. I'm a citizen, and I cannot be a citizen just on Election Day, because then I'm abdicating my rights, my powers, and my duties as a citizen. I'm a citizen 365 days of the year. That's part of this American experiment, that you're not a subject, but you're a citizen and you have power, not just with the uh, ballot. You have power, period, because you don't serve the elected. The elected have to serve us. So that's us yes. starstruck because someone got elected. No, they've been elected to work citizens make them
1: work. And, you know, yes. that that is actually a very good point that you talked about because it's much more than just voting. Um, I know just from family members, there have been issues in Jackson over the years where there have been certain, you know, pipes burst or sewage breaks and things like that, and the city doesn't respond to it. I think it was probably back in 2013 or 14, which is something that's missing in the national discussion, the city entered into a contract with Siemens, and Siemens... Uh, that's um, a, a big company the tech down company. there. They're yeah, a the big, big
0: German tech company. Yes,
1: and so Siemens actually, um, it was just a total flop that they did with the billing system. So there were issues with the billing system. So it was about a $90 million contract that they ended in, entered into with Siemens. And for years, Jackson was not able to actually collect any water fees, which would have totaled about $1.8 million a month. A and, month? Yeah, $1.8 million a month, which they would have gotten. So that was in lost revenue. Wow. Um, there were so many other things that were happening. Um, the city, I think probably sometime some some years ago, they approved an actual um, increase because they, they were trying to actually recruit, recoup this. So they, the city actually approved voters. To your point about voting, voters actually approved and think it was a 1% increase in water collection fees just to kind of make up for the damage that had been done with the Siemens contract. So there was a lot of mismanagement on that oh, side. Wow. Um, you know, you hear contractors, they talk about how pretty much in Jackson, there was, they did the patch. So, you know, they put a Band-Aid over it, yes. but then they didn't fix the larger problem. So definitely there were a lot of things that contributed to it that actually is beyond race, that is beyond, um, you know, voting. That the city itself—they've done a lot of mismanaging over the years. Now, yes.
0: Now, speaking of mismanagement, I want to shift gears a little bit because I think this one is going to take a little bit of time. Um, Reese earlier had brought up, you know, the first day of school back at Uvalde, Texas. Um, so, you know, this brings the highlight on on kids, right? Now, Prince George's County in Maryland. They have decided to implement, I don't know why they're doing it now when school is starting again uh, and not over the summer, but they are implementing a, a 10 p.m. curfew for everybody age 17 and under for all these minors because they said there have been 430 juvenile arrests so far. Um,
1: 84 carjackings? Uh,
0: 84 that were arrested were, had 84 arrested, 34 had priors. For violent crimes and gun offenses, Um, most of them were carjackings, which are 15-year-olds and under, which is crazy to me that these teeny boppers are carjacking. Uh, Now, for folks that are not familiar with the DMV Metro, uh, PG County, as it's called, Prince George's County, is a primarily black county um, in the DMV Metro area.
1: One of the wealthiest black counties in the nation.
0: Right. And suddenly, per capita, and they are suddenly implementing this curfew for all the kids, all of them. So, obviously, it's not, they're not looking for black kids or anything in particular. They're they are just saying all kids as a whole, starting this weekend, you all need to get off the street. You know, when 15. I was a kid, when I was a kid, streetlights come on. That was how you, we didn't have smartphones, right, in the 80s. Streetlights come on, that's when you know, or else grandpa or my mom or somebody was going to come drag me in by the ear. So the city administrators are talking to the press. They're saying, where are these parents? Where? Where's the grandma? Where's, you know, where's big mama? Where's your mom? Where's whoever? Where are the adults? So they're, they're kind of pointing the finger out there saying that this kind of arrest number is out of control. Um, in Philadelphia, recently, we saw a similar curfew with a spike in violent crimes there and mass shooting sprees happening um, in broad daylight in Philadelphia. Now, what is happening with the the teens across this country, Reverend?
5: You know, let me say this. And Manila, you know, you and I, over the years, especially when I was in Chicago, we, we dealt a lot with violence and everything. Because, you know, in 2018, I know one of my buddies, uh, a pastor, he did... Uh, 104 funerals that year in 2018. And I remember him calling me saying, Linden said, I can't take it anymore. I said, you shouldn't be able to take it. That's too much. We were on the cover of the Sunday t- Sun Times and were asking us, how how do we handle all these funerals that we were doing? Because I think then then you guys know this past July 4th, a very affluent suburb of Chicago had the Highland Park, Highland Park Massacre, right? And so I was there that weekend actually funeralizing a, a cousin of mine and so we, we know that you know what happened that weekend in Chicago proper in Chicago proper is that 70 people were shot and 15 killed, right? Now that, that, That's not seen as a massacre because maybe they weren't all shot in the same place, right? But the thing is, uh, me and some of my colleagues talked about but it's still happening on a regular basis, so much so that it's, that it's seen as, as normative. And so trust me. Well, you know, when I was in Chicago and, and working on this in New York coming off this pandemic because people were under pressure, now they're popping, you know, like pots and everything, is that, you know, we, we, we created a, like a parent, a parent surrogate program, right, to teach parents how to be parents. You know, okay, pa- okay parenting is a problem. Let's, how do we work on that? How do we get money going towards that? We've had to work on things in terms of having black-led programs getting funded. What I mean by that, and this guy is a great friend of mine. He was secretary of education. He was superintendent of schools in Chicago, Arnie Duncan. Arnie is a great friend of mine. Lauren Jobs, Steve Jobs' wife, Apple, she gave Arnie $90 million, you know, to use to to do some things in Chicago. And there were a lot of programs, black-led programs there. And, you know, again, Arnie and I are great friends. But it was like sister jobs. We've been on the ground for a long time in the dirt, you know, and so what, what about us? Again, not pushing any kind of victimology, but in terms of the curfew piece, I know there are people that are talking about personal freedoms and everything. And most time, when I hear people talking about issues of violence and everything in minority communities, I need to know where you live. Because if, you, if you're advocating certain things, where do you live? Come spend the night. I remember me and Reverend Jackson had spent the night in uh, 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 one of the great, you know, famous projects in Chicago. I forget. The, it wasn't Cabrini Green. It was another one. And it was amazing that the woman's apartment that we were staying in, we slept there overnight because of things happening there, right? We understand that real leadership means everything is committed, not just your intellect, but your body as well. Well, that woman was the woman that had met Jesse Jackson in 1971, when she got shot in her stomach while she was pregnant. And Jesse and the people there, they took her to the emergency room and saved her and the baby. We didn't know we were coming to her apartment. It was just that thing. Right. So again, what we learn is, is that none of these problems are new. None of the solutions are new, but it is the implementation of these solutions that must be sustainable. Right. And so if, if, if we, if we think that partisanship is going to sustain solutions we have no historical context we are historical but again it is i i believe it is it is the citizenry that we have to continue to educate and galvanize the citizenry because if someone says well we're restricting people's freedom of movement look curfews haven't done that much look i know for a fact what curfews can do Curfews may not get the predators off the street, but it is the prey, P-R-E-Y, off the street. You see what I'm saying? There are people that are on the street who are not predators, who need to be in the house when the lions and tigers or whatever come out at night, you know? and so, But these are things you only learn by having boots on the ground. Manila, you know, I've it in some of the most challenged areas in, in, in the city. I had a young lady, 17, pregnant. She was shot, you know, uh, uh, killed, killed her baby. Her boyfriend shot him in the back. Well, his daddy lived across the street from me. He was the biggest drug dealer in the area. But guess what? Myself, the police, you know, this dude was no dummy. We had to negotiate and work with this guy. And then when his son was shot and his girlfriend killed, he he wanted to work a little bit more. But what I'm trying to say is most of the public, well, a lot of the public, doesn't understand that it's not just black and white, cut and dried, when you're dealing with issues of violence, because again, issues of violence use the tools of division and racism in order to achieve the objective of advantage, right? And Reverend Livingston. Power,
2: Reverend Livingston. This is Reese. Thank you for coming on this morning. So. I do hear you, and I do want to say that I I feel like, to an extent, there's a disparity here. When you look at the situation in Uvalde, Texas, in a quiet suburb, and a European descent uh, young man man goes into a school and shoots up children, there's a mindset, or there's one, there's access to privilege, there's access to opportunity, it wasn't a lack of jobs, there's literally just a mindset poisoned towards violence, open to killing. When you go into other communities where people have been deprived, depraved of opportunities, of, you know, access to things, you know, simple things, whether it's a recreation center, a job core training center, or just like you said, jobs, um, they, they can tend to turn to the streets for recreation. And so there's a distinction between going into a school and just shooting up babies um, because you are depraved as an individual versus your community being deprived and you trying to um, rob your way to, you know, have access to food and groceries or or just nice things. And I think, uh, you know, it's true. We don't have, I would say that, you know, the vast majority of the people that they probably have arrested for carjacking weren't doing it because they needed to, you know, put some food in their stomach. It was probably so that they could have iPhones and, you know, things of that nature, flashy items, which unfortunately the culture of, you know, just young young culture, uh, I won't even say pop hip-hop, culture. pop culture does promulgate all of that ideology of, oh, I've got to have this and I've got to have that. And, you know, I mean, I, if you at recall... at what cost, right? At what cost? If you recall during the uh, George Floyd uprisings, a lot of the D.C. stores and a lot of stores across the country, there were smash and grabs and they went into, you know, the the Rolex store and the, all of these stores broke windows and, and took items that they could then show on Instagram and mm, say, oh, yes. I've got this, I've got that. So I would say that a large number of the people in PG County, which is like we said, not a poor county. Um, are looking to be able to showcase some type of wealth. And so it's really an economic issue, socioeconomic, no?
5: Yes, it is socioeconomic. And there's also the understanding that violence existed in America before television or anything like that, because there is a hypocrisy about violence in America. If, if You know, the, the thing is, and if I could just say this real quick, because sometimes people get turned off by this, but we talk about how this country was. This country started in violence. Every country starts in violence. Nobody says, OK, you can have this border. OK, bye bye. You know, you have people leaving Europe, uh, you know, uh, monarch monarchies and oligarchies coming here to start a. A democracy that's supposed to be based in meritocracy, but it has the underlying his, uh, hypocrisy of slaveocracy—a slaveocracy informed by colorocracy and pigmentocracy. And so, how do you sustain a slaveocracy? How do you turn uh, an African into a slave? It, it requires violence and lethality and savagery, and it has to be sustained over the years to have it generational because slavery was real in America because we had to abolish it with the 13th Amendment, right? And so we oftentimes look at the violence that is, has that is, that is, been put upon the, the, the Africans, uh, you know, but also the oppressor. How do you reverse engineer, you see, that kind of, of, of thinking, those kind of ideologies? Things are passed down through families, right? All I'm saying is, is that the, the violence that we see Uh, yeah, we use phones now and everything and every generation has something that is modern, right? But it's doing the same thing, you know? And so if you want to look at the violence in in America before there were phones, people still found a way to get together and say, look, we're going to meet after church and have a picnic, right? I don't want to get too deep into that. But I I guess what I'm saying is that when you talk about the socioeconomic uh, aspects of this, that's spot on. That's spot on. And then we look at what are the hindrances of populations or certain uh, members of certain demographics from being able to achieve those things, you know? And so how do we open things up? You know, how how do we make this happen to give people opportunity? We're not, we're not looking to assure I'm not any outcomes. You know, if if you make the team, you got to play, you know, you got to be in practice, you know, you got to show up. You can't be partying the night before the super bowl right as guys yep. have done that. and we saw the consequences of that in, in real time but it is indeed i agree counselor that it is a, a socioeconomic issue and for me on the other level there's a spiritual root to it we see what our visible selves do but our invisible selves
0: we got 1 minute left rev
5: okay because thoughts are the combination of uh your your intellect and your and, and your emotions, how they're shaped, right? That's why facts may not come out as truth. But in terms of what's happening, uh, in the Uvalde thing, counselor, was a great point, because we do see people in different ways, because that's part of our legacy here in America, that we see different people differently in terms of value, right? Black bodies have always been valued over black minds and things like that. But in terms of solution, we have to do all that we can. Yes. Curfews and the situation in Jackson, Mississippi. You know, the citizen. We have to be galvanized. You
0: know. Reverend, Reverend, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to cut in because we have to go hard out at eight o'clock. Uh, but I want to thank you so much for giving us this deep you know, look in the mirror, as you always do. Reverend Gregory Seal Livingston, he is an ordained minister, pastor, preacher, civil rights and community leader in New York City, founder, president of Equinomics Global. Thank you so much, Reverend. You have been listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. We'll be right back.
3: Fault Lines. lines we
1: are live from the divided states of america in the belly of the beast in washington dc good morning you are listening to fault lines on radio sputnik thank you for joining us on rumble 105.5 fm and 1390 a.m in the dc metro we are also in kansas city at 11:40 a.m 102.9 fm and 104.7 Fort 7 FM on your radio dial. I am the Durag Conservative here in studio with the Fixin' of Veritas, the Thrilla in Manila, Chan and M. Reese Everson. This is the show that dares to go there. This is Faultline. Wow. Thanks, thanks, Reverend. Right. That Reverend. was it. And I actually agree with him about the um, spiritual component it's of very it. True. Like, that's probably the biggest thing because you have people who, you know, they don't. It, it, and I have friends who live in Prince George's County, Maryland. They're okay with the curfew. Um, really? Oh, Are they yeah. Parents? Well, well parents, um, people who don't have kids. Things are always different when when it's in your own backyard, yes. and so the conversations that they have when these curfews happens in other places, like, oh, I don't know, how could they do something like, like that? Oh, that's
0: draconian! It's like China during yeah. COVID.
1: But I but I have a friend who two of his friends were carjacked.
0: Oh, wow! And
1: they live in one of Prince George's County's wealthier neighborhoods, where the average home is probably about six hundred thousand. And yeah, so the median income in Prince George's itself—six figures. Well, it's about ninety-seven thousand. Wow. So it's not just right some, there. Yeah, so it's not some impoverished area, but they're they're concerned about it. Wow. And you know, what but do you do? But it's
2: surrounded by impoverished area. By you know, oh, Baltimore pockets. is only yeah. Pockets, yeah. Baltimore is only what thirty minutes away. Mm-hmm. So you do have communities that are economically disadvantaged right there on the border who can you know know to go there and find the money
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and and it just it's just it's more just about opportunism you know people, you know you take advantage of an opportunity to 14 and 15 year old girls um teens who kit who carjacked and then ultimately ended up killing the uber driver here in dc right it was like a 13 year
0: year. old and a Four, 15, yeah,
1: 13 and 15 years yeah. old. They'll be out by, I think they're, you know, the age of 21. So, sure, they were, they're in like juvenile detention or whatever that is. But this is, these are the type of things that happen. Yeah, that and it was so, all
0: caught on video. Yeah, it was, was caught on video. So shocking.
1: And at the end of the day, what do you girls. do about it?
0: They're little girls. Yeah. Broad daylight.
1: Broad daylight. Up, uh, n- down, National is. Stadium. Right It was here, literally yeah. right by National Stadium.
0: And it just. Yeah, I, I don't know. We, we've we got a lot of complaints about Mayor Bowser, I know, from all sides of the yes. political spectrum, but that was like one of the most jarring and shocking yeah.
1: things. Because it had happened in an area that people aren't accustomed right. to. So this is literally in the Navy Yard
0: mm-hmm. um, National Park going
1: on area. Young
2: people, specifically, and the level of depravity of humanity, we've fallen to a, a whole new low. Yeah.
1: Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. So, let's start with some headline news. Yes, sir. In national news, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, as if you didn't know, agents who actually uh, searched former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence in August seized a document shedding light on a foreign government's military defenses and its nuclear capabilities. So, does the Washington Post report it? That probably came from a leak from the Department of Justice. According to government court filings cited by the outlet, the FBI has recovered more than 300 classified documents from Mar-a-Lago, 184 in in a set of 15 boxes sent to the National Archives and Records Administration earlier, and in January, with 38 more handed over by a Trump lawyer to investigators in June. The court-approved FBI raid on August 8th seized a batch of more than 100 additional documents which purportedly contain the information about a foreign government's nuclear defense readiness. Sources from the DOJ are revealing. With most of Massachusetts being a solidly blue state, many of of the elections are a foregone conclusion which makes the primary elections more significant. And despite this blue leaning the state has, the current governor is a Republican and in 2012, GOP presidential candidate Mitt Romney preceded him. So Republicans actually can win in Massachusetts and in fact, they have. Speaking of elections for governor, Attorney General Mara Healey secured the Democratic nomination for the top office in the state. She was running unopposed, though Sonia Chang-Diaz was still on the ballot because she dropped out too late to be removed. Despite officially dropping out, Chang-Diaz still received roughly 15% of the vote as of press time, likely from early voting. If Healy wins, she will become the first elected female governor of Massachusetts, Jane Swift, Remember her was acting governor from 2001 to 2003 after taking over from for Paul Cellucci, but she was not elected to the position. Healy will face off against Geoff Deal, a former state representative who was endorsed by former President Donald Trump. Deal beat Dowdy with 56.3 of the vote, with only 35% reporting at press time. Former U.S. Secretary of State and 2000 Democratic presidential nominee and former First Lady of the United States, Hillary Clinton, said in an interview that she will not run for President of the United States again. What a bummer. No, no, Clinton said in an interview broadcast by CBS on Tuesday when asked if she would run for President again. However, Clinton promised to do everything she can to ensure the United States has a president who respects democracy, the rule of law, and upholds U.S. institutions. Should former President Donald Trump run for president again and become the Republican nominee, Clinton said he would need to be defeated. She also added that the Republican Party needs to grow a backbone and stand up to Trump. California's power grid operator has declared an, emergency, an energy emergency warning that it may institute rolling blackouts to curb a surge in demand, which has hit an all-time record high as residents crank up the A.C. to escape an unprecedented heat wave. The California Independent System Operator, ISO, issued a level three emergency alert on Tuesday night, saying electricity supplies were beginning to run low in the face of record heat and demand. And that there could be outages, if needed, quoting, ISO could order utilities to begin rotating power outages to maintain stability of the electric grid, the agency said adding that Tuesday's peak electricity demand is expected to exceed 52,000 megawatts, a new historic all-time high for the grid. The ISO went on to explain that contained power outages will help to maintain reliability and avoid cascading blackouts, ensuring the system doesn't collapse into uncontrolled, unplanned power failures. Newly elected UK Conservative Party leader and Prime Minister, Liz Truss, broke with tradition on Tuesday. Her telephone conversation with U.S. counterpart Joe Biden came after her first call to Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. Truss, long known as a proponent of her president's predecessor Boris Johnson's assertive anti-Russian stance, had vowed. Repeatedly during the Tory leadership campaign, that after gaining keys to number 10 Downing Street, she would start off by pledging Britain's support for Ukraine. The Prime Minister spoke to President of Ukraine, Zelensky, this evening to reiterate the UK's steadfast support for Ukraine's freedom and democracy. In her first call with a counterpart since becoming Prime Minister, she reiterated to the Ukrainian leader that he had her full backing and Ukraine could help depend on UK's assistance for the long term. President Zelensky also issued an invitation for the prime minister to visit Kiev, which the spokesperson said she was very excited, delighted, I quote, to accept. G7 countries have got another thing coming if they think they can dictate energy prices to Russia via a price cap. So says Russian President Vladimir Putin. You asked about capping prices and I'm quoting here, for our energy resources? This is an absolutely stupid decision. If someone tries to implement it, it will not lead to anything good for those who do so. Putin said during a panel discussion at the Eastern Economic Forum in Vladivostok on Wednesday. Commenting on the energy crisis being experienced by European countries, the Russian president emphasized that it's, quote, it's impossible to impair objective economic laws. Everything will come back on those who do so, like a boomerang. Restrictions will only only lead to new supply imbalances and price hike. This is what Putin stressed. The International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, has called for an end to all military activity around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and insisted that shelling in the area must stop. The agency's report on the situation in Ukraine published on Tuesday, but it stopped short of identifying the culprits targeting the Russian-held facility. Quoting, any military activity such as shelling within or in the vicinity of a nuclear facility has the potential to cause an unacceptable radiological consequence. The IAEA report said, adding that seven pillars of nuclear safety have all been compromised at the site. The IAEA recommends that shelling on the site and and in its vicinity should be stopped immediately to avoid any further damages to the plant and associated facilities for the safety of the operating staff and to maintain the physical integrity to support safe and secure operation. The agency said, adding that this would require an agreement by all relevant parties to the establishment of a nuclear safety and security protection zone around the ZNPP. Zaporozhye is Europe's largest nuclear power plant, along with nearby city of Energodar, and it has been under Russian control since March. Artillery, drone, and rocket attacks began in July, damaging cooling systems, power lines, and other facilities. The Pentagon is prepared to target China's core logistical support should it show aggression t- towards Taiwan. U.S. General and Deputy Chief of Staff for Air Force Futures Clinton, he warned warned doing an Atlantic Council panel on the future of air warfare on Tuesday. Quoting, We're going to make it really hard to do offensive maneuvers against our friends and I would hope that our potential adversary China might think about that if they're going to contemplate the difficulty of getting across a 90 mile strait and going against Taiwan. He explained, I would hope that they would realize we're not just going to let their logistics flow. The general had returned to the subject of a potential war with China after he was asked about the one lesson he hoped the U.S. military might take from the war in Ukraine, which was the focus of the event held by the think tank's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. He also floated the threat of a Taiwan invasion to illustrate how the U.S.'s strategic approach needed to focus on maintaining the current balance of power rather than overthrowing or upsetting its centers Moving to this day in history 1901 the Boxer Rebellion in the Qing Dynasty modern day China officially ends with the signing of the Boxer Protocol In 1921 in Atlantic City New Jersey the first Miss, uh, Miss America Pageant a two-day event is held And 1953 Nikita Khrushchev Khrushchev Is elected first secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And in 1996, rapper and actor Tupac Shakur is fatally shot in a drive by shooting in Las Vegas, Nevada. He succumbs to his injuries six days later. And in 2021, Bitcoin becomes legal tender in El Salvador. Those are your headlines for today's date. September 7th, you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik.
0: All right, when when we come back, we're going to be talking the IAEA new report that was issued just last night. Um, they're saying that they want to keep a team of inspectors there. Uh, so who better to talk about nuclear weapons inspection than a former nuclear weapons inspector? We're going to bring in Scott Ritter right after the break. You don't want to miss that. Stay tuned. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik.
3: Fault Lines. Fault Lines.
0: Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined with this week's guest co-host, Malik Abdul and Emreese Everson. Uh, We're going to switch over to talk about the new findings from the IAEA who have just departed from the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Uh, They issued their report, the UN report last night, um, and they're recommending that they keep some inspectors on the ground So who better to talk about that than a former U.N. weapons inspector himself, Mr. Scott Ritter. He's also a weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. You can follow Scott only on Telegram because he has been banned on pretty much all the other social media for saying things that the tech overlords don't like. Uh, You can follow him on Telegram at, the name is kind of difficult, Scott Ritter. So Scott, thank you for being here with us. First, um, Did you have a chance to look over that report? Is is there anything interesting that came out of it? And what do you think about them recommending that some inspectors stay put?
6: No, I've read the report in in detail. Um, It's what I expected. Uh, It's a a technical report that, uh, you know, focuses on the bread and butter of what the uh, IAEA Uh, is all about, which is nuclear safeguards, that is uh, safeguarding the nuclear material and the operations of nuclear power plants. Um, This was not a nuclear weapons inspection. These guys know nothing of nuclear weapons. That's not what they're there for. They're they're solely to ensure the safe operation of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and to ensure that the appropriate measures are in place to secure uh, the nuclear material. That is um, allocated to that site, both the, that in the uh, nuclear reactors, but also the spent nuclear fuel that uh, is currently stored at the site in various cooling ponds. Um, and you know, their their, their report uh, reflects a couple realities. The first reality is the plant continues to operate safely. Um, there there are some concerns that they have uh, related to how the current conflict is infringing on the operations of the plant, first and foremost, the ongoing uh, shelling. We'll get to that in a second. But they they do acknowledge that um, these artillery attacks against the plant have caused um, serious infrastructure damage, which, uh, although hasn't resulted in any um, release of radioactive material or uh, created a, a condition that could lead to a nuclear emergency at the plant. Um, they they don't uh, they don't eliminate that possibility. In fact, they say continued military strikes of this nature could very well uh, lead to a very dangerous situation for not just the people working at the plant, but all of Europe. Um, they they speak of the competency of the. Uh, Ukrainian staff that uh, currently mans the facility. There was some concern that they were working under duress and uh, the Russians were impeding their work. That is not the case. They they are stressed, of course. They're working uh, in a war zone, uh, but they have adequate staffing um, and there is, um, you know, a, a, a modicum of coordination between them the Russian military that's providing security for the facility and um, Russian managers from the Russian Atomic uh, Energy Organization. Uh, I think people need to understand that, legally speaking, uh, the, the Ukrainian staff works for the Ukrainian Atomic uh, Authority. And uh, indeed, the IAEA is at that facility uh, at the invitation of the Ukrainians, not the Russians. So legally speaking, from the IAEA's perspective, this is a Ukrainian facility. And so there was some tension between the IAEA and the Russian uh, atomic energy personnel, um, because for the IAEA to recognize their authority over the site would be to de facto recognize uh, Russian um, sovereignty over the site. That not- oh. is not... Is not- able or willing to do so there's there's that underlying tension there that um i i think people uh, who just read the report uh, you know uh, based upon the words that are written won't won't understand why there was that tension between the i e a and the russian uh and the in the Russian atomic energy people it's because of issues of sovereignty
0: oh gotcha I got gotcha.
6: the, the one thing that uh, didn't happen in this site is that there was no uh blame allocated to who's responsible for uh, attacking the site. And I I said up front, you'll never get the IAEA or any United Nations organization to uh, pass off uh, blame, point of finger, unless they are specifically mandated to do so by the Security Council. Um, They were not. They did bring ballistics experts at the insistence of the Russian Federation. But these ballistic experts apparently had their assessment, uh, abilities limited to, uh, damage, battle damage, uh, the, the damage done to, to, to a facility, what is the potential for, uh, further damage, et cetera, even though from a forensic standpoint, and you're speaking to a guy who used to do this for a living, uh, I, it, it's 100% certain that they could, that they know where these strikes came from. They can't say we saw that with, uh, the, uh, the Secretary General uh, or the Director General speaking to the press when he was just asked straight up who's responsible. He said, oh, we don't have that information. Well, he does have that. He's just not going to release that information. And this is the problem. This team was used by the Ukrainians. I think everybody needs to understand that. International inspectors were dispatched at the request of the Ukrainian government, who timed a military offensive Designed to capture the plant, seize control of the plant through force, while the inspection team was there.
2: Ah, diversion.
6: Inspectors, in effect, holding the inspectors hostage, so that an international peacekeeping force could be dispatched. That was the goal of the Ukrainian government, and continues to be the goal of the Ukrainian government: the dispatch of a UN peacekeeping force. Um, this this attack was defeated. The inspectors went on with their inspection. Uh, Russia is in control of the site. But already you see uh, two things. One, the Ukrainian government asking for another inspection, uh, this one accompanied by UN peacekeepers. Two, you have uh, Grossi saying, uh, we are we, we believe that the ultimately the best way to secure the site is to have demilitarization, and we would like to work with people to achieve that. In effect, echoing the Ukrainian uh, call. So this is not uh, this. This isn't a, a, a story that's over yet. This is right. the first chapter. It will be a, an evolving situation. Unfortunately, one that has the Ukrainian government uh, holding the world hostage through nuclear blackmail, because it is solely responsible for the attacks taking place. And today, the facility is being pounded, pounded by artillery in an effort by the Ukrainians to Create an emergency type situation that warrants international intervention.
0: Scott, a couple of things here I'd I'd like to touch on, kind of as a follow up. Um, one, in in the way of the Russian perspective, um, if we look at how the OPCW, the Organization for Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, and how they operated in Syria, and mind you, mind the audience, I should say that that the Russian military was invited. To Syria during uh, the height of the civil war to assist Bashar al-Assad in um, in taking down, doing away with with the terror and rebel groups trying to overthrow the government, they were invited there by the official government of Syria. The OPCW uh, with their findings there can can the Russians have any faith in these outside organizations in being fair and just and do does having a a permanent d i mean a quasi dmZ i guess would that really help in in quelling any violence at any point? i mean, does it look like there's any you know chance of easing up on the violence in the south in in the Kherson region
6: well uh, first of all the russia unfortunately knows the truth about. How the United States and its Western allies have corrupted the United Nations and international organizations affiliated with the United Nations, such as the OPCW, such as the IAEA. I mean, my time as an inspector with the United Nations in Iraq, Uh, Russia witnessed firsthand how the United States used the inspection team for purposes other than that uh, mandated by the Security Council. Uh, which you know, we're supposed to be disarming. Instead, we're being used to facilitate regime change. Um, the same thing with the OPCW in Syria. Uh, the Russians saw firsthand how the OPCW uh, allowed itself to be used by uh, anti Syrian government uh, forces, uh, Islamic militants, um, as a vehicle to manufacture a crisis worthy of international military intervention, meaning to bomb Syria uh, to achieve what else regime change um and now we have a situation where the iaea and the united nations appears to be um taking sides even though Grossi, uh the the uh, director general um you know carried out you know a a ostensibly neutral inspection the fact is he was being used by the ukrainians for purposes um that had nothing to do with safeguarding um, and it is continuing to be used by the Ukrainians and their Western supporters uh, to, uh, you know, to reverse Russia's military victory through the insertion of international peacekeeping forces. Two things about the international peacekeeping forces. One, it ain't ever going to happen. That's just the, you know, Russia will never allow it. So it's sort of fruitless to even speculate or talk about it. But two, if for some ever reason they were there, um, it wouldn't change anything because the Ukrainian army isn't going to win. Um, I mean, the peacekeepers would eventually find themselves surrounded, uh, isolated, um, and ultimately uh, be compelled to be evacuated uh, because they serve no useful purpose. Um, you know, we're in, a, we're in a, a situation where, unfortunately, a nuclear power plant has found itself in the middle of a conflict one side of the conflict has sought to do the right thing, which is to secure the plant and allow for its continued operation. Um, another side is seeking to hold the world hostage by threatening, not threatening, but by attacking the plant, uh, creating the potential for a large-scale nuclear crisis uh, in the hopes that the world will intervene on their on their behalf. Um, uh, you know, we know who's on the right side of history. We just hope that uh the situation doesn't evolve such that um, there won't be anybody there to read the history books when it's all said and done. Scott,
7: hey, Scott. That,
2: oh sorry, Oh no, go ahead. That was going to be my point. If, as we know, with the um, Chernobyl in '86, um, that there was literally an er- the area of land surrounding it isn't even going to be safe for occupancy for another twenty thousand years. We know that the water, the groundwater has been tainted. there have been attempts to um, you know clean up it which cost over a billion dollars um, there's been attempts to uh, basically make that area safe for 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 life. The cost of this is just so high. the long term cancer effects of you know four thousand people. What we're looking at here could be so catastrophic that I I guess I'm not understanding the risk, the willingness to take the risk. I understand that it's a war strategy. And I mean, to some extent, it's it's almost evil genius. But the cost to the Ukrainian people would be devastating. Um, And to Europe at large, I mean, even, you know, back when Chernobyl happened, they had to move they had to move um, animals to different farmland because all the way in Sweden, uh, you know, could, uh, radiation was showing up on their indicators. And, and so the farmland and the food supply of, of Europe wasn't even safe. I'm just, it just seems like too great of a price or, or to risk.
6: No, I mean, you're, you're, you're correct. If, if a Chernobyl-like event was to occur in Zaporizhia, uh, the price that would be paid by the Ukrainian people, by the Russian people, by all of Europe and the world, uh, is is um, insanely high. And so you ask yourself, well, then why are they doing this? Unfortunately, um, the reality is there is very little risk of a Chernobyl-like uh, incident at Zaporizhia. Um, artillery will not create a Chernobyl-like incident. Um, you would have to have a perfect storm of... Um, you know, of artillery strikes that uh, that 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 destroyed every backup plan possible. And then you'd have to have willful negligence on the part of the Russians, uh, you know, not to intervene properly to bring in um, energy to power, the diesel, everything The the, the plant is impervious to to the, the nuclear reactors are impervious to artillery strikes. Uh, you can shell them all day. Uh, They're shut down. You're not going to breach the the reactor core, Uh, so you're not going to get a Chernobyl explosion. If you take down the power grid and the backup power and the diesel generators, um, then uh, theoretically you could could get some sort of incident, but even that wouldn't be a Chernobyl-type incident because they'll just scram the reactor, shut it down. It'll ruin the reactor forever, but you're not going to get an explosion. This is a hard reality.
1: Hey Scott. This is Malik. Thanks for joining us. Um, And actually piggybacking off of Reese's point of the cost of war. Now, we know that the Ukrainian troops have actually, they've been using a large number of troops to actually seize Kherson. If they fail, will this lead to a domino effect up until the city of Odessa? Uh,
6: War is cyclical in nature. I mean, um, what I mean by that is, you know, Fast forward, Russia wins. We know that. Now, what we what we don't know is how long this is going to take. Uh, what we're seeing right now with the, first of all, the Ukrainian offensive will fail. They don't have sufficient resources to successfully conclude that which they have started. Um, so their offensive, their counteroffensive, will eventually peter out as they exhaust their reserves. Russia, in the meantime, is in the midst of an operational pause while they're building, rebuilding their um, offensive capabilities. You can't. There's no nation in the world that can carry out nonstop offensive operations for five months straight. That's what Russia's been doing. Uh, look, when the United States invaded Iraq in 2003, we had to take an operational pause short of Baghdad after only a few weeks because we outran our logistics. Uh, we ran out of gas. We needed ammunition resupply, et cetera. That's after a few weeks of fighting that comes nowhere near the intensity that's going on in Ukraine today. Russia had a five-month offensive. They're taking a pause. They're re-equipping, retraining, refitting. This pause was well-known. The Ukrainians are exploiting that by bringing in reserves. They've been building up for months and they're launching a counterattack. They have objectives. Um, I doubt they're going to achieve those objectives. I believe they're going to have their reserves destroyed Pushing them back on the defensive. Then with the cycle begins anew. Russia goes on the offensive. Um, you know, how long will it take Russia to reach Odessa? Russia isn't looking at the calendar. They right. keep going until the military reality on the ground requires either, it results in either total victory or another operational pause. Right. Meanwhile, NATO continues to train, equip, supply a uh, Ukrainian military, which is still 700,000 men strong. I mean, hmm. right now they're suffering casualties. They've lost maybe five to eight thousand men in uh, in southern Ukraine. That's a lot, but when you have seven hundred thousand, it's not a lot. Uh, so Ukraine can keep doing this for a while, and, uh, and and so we could be looking at a war that continues on through the winter and into the spring and early summer of next year.
0: Well, Scott, on on that note, we you and I have talked about this before. We know that the Russian military is. Particularly adept at maneuvering in the cold winter season, um, they actually operate probably supremely um, it in when it's snowy and icy and cold out. Um, and we know that there's a, a, a at least a humanitarian supply shortage in Ukraine right now, with as much money as as the U.S. continues to dump over there. I mean, I think we just upped another fourteen billion, another fourteen B with a B out there uh, to Ukraine. Meanwhile, the Western media is not talking about that. They are pointing out that the Russians are supposedly making deals with North Korea to get artillery and shells. Um, and, and they're saying that this is, you know, proof or evidence that the sanctions are working because, oh, the Russians can't create, you know, their own, their own arms fast enough. Um, couldn't one argue that because the North Koreans have so much Soviet era, Soviet style uh, machinery, hardware that works in Russian guns and Russian weapons, that the munitions that they have, that this actually creates an endless supply for the Russians?
6: Well, first of all, I mean, I, I, I'm totally 100% dismissive of the North Korean claim. And I'll tell you why. I have enough respect for Russia and the Russian military and Russian military industry to, um, believe that when they claim they care about quality control, uh, that they mean it. And there, there's this, there, there's no way that Russia, um, would enter into an agreement where they purchase significant quantities of ammunition of unknown quality, unknown quality, (laughs) and then the front lines be used in combat. Are you kidding me? It just isn't going to happen. How do they know these North Korean shells work? What standard do they have? Will they freeze up in the wintertime? You know, Russian munitions are tested. They go through a whole testing process. There is a standard in their creation. They're rugged. They function. They work. Um, Why would Russia turn to the North Koreans, having never inspected their facilities, having never entered a contractual relationship where there's quality control throughout the production process, and suddenly buy this stuff and send it over? This is Western propaganda of the worst. Or- yeah,
8: I mean, Scott, they keep
0: pushing the idea that, oh, Vladimir Putin's in secret talks uh, to buy, you know, with Erdogan to buy uh, drones and, and, or excuse me, with Iran, not Erdogan, excuse me, with the Ayatollah and and they're, oh, they're they're getting Iranian drones over there. Now they're getting... Uh, North Korean artillery and shells and ammo. I mean, w- why does the Western media continue to depress that narrative?
6: Well, oh, that's the same reason why they they uh, repeat at face value everything that comes out of Ukraine about the bold offensive operation, daring thrust, great victories. Let's let's, let's talk about Iranian drones for a second. Um, the Russians, there's no doubt that the Russians have entered into a discussion with the Iranians uh, about drone drone technology. In fact, Russia has said that they are interested in doing a joint um, uh, development and production capability in Russia, to build a facility to do that. Understand what that means, to build a facility under Russian control, with Russian quality control, a facility that will take Iranian technology and adapt it to the realities of the Russian military. You cannot take an Iranian drone with Iranian electronics, Iranian uh, communications, and a drone that's designed to deal with Iranian operational realities and suddenly say it is transferable to the Ukraine. Really? Launch the drone. Please talk to my artillery people. Can't. Different radio, different frequency, no secure communications. Has it been hardened against uh, NATO electronic warfare capabilities? Jamming. Nope. So NATO's just going to sink it right off the bat. Russia would never do this. The Russians are professional military personnel. They have their own drones. Their drones work very, very well. They don't need Iranian drones. They would like to work to ban cooperation with Iran from a strategic position that has nothing to do with Ukraine and everything to do with Russia uh, expanding eastwards. Russia's doing A-OK on the battlefield. They aren't running out of ammunition, and they don't need Iranian drones. Any military professional knows this, but the media says it because most people listening to the media aren't military professionals.
1: Scott, it, it, you mentioned the readiness. I actually have a question I was reading and probably maybe last week there was a report that uh, defense uh, officials were reporting that the U.S. were actually depleting our stockpile because of the military operation in Ukraine. We're sending so many of our own stockpile mm-hmm. there. Um Aside from that point, what do you think, as far as just like projecting, and I know in this type of situation, obviously it's very difficult to project, but there's an an entire trickle-down effect of... Where, and yeah, as you can imagine, the system of procurement here in the U.S., it has to go through several channels and defense contractors actually have to have time to prepare in order to get some of those orders in. But it's creating an actual backlog because of our support in Ukraine is creating such a backlog here in the U.S. Like, what do you what do you think of that? Like projecting down the road?
0: Yeah, the HIMARS, I believe HIMARS are in back order.
1: Mm hmm.
6: HIMARS in back order, the ammunition's in back order. We've expended apparently one-third of our HIMARS ammunition stock. Um, and that, that needs to sink in for a second. HIMARS was designed to be a battlefield support weapon for the United States military that enabled us to carry out uh, very precision uh, strikes against enemy logistics, command and control, troop concentrations, etc., to be a disruptive element On the battlefield, the Ukrainians are using it with American assistance very effectively. The Russians acknowledge this. They say that one of the reasons why the Ukrainian offensive right now is making any progress is that they are using HIMARS and M777 uh, howitzers as they were designed to. They are disrupting Russian reserves, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But that means that they're also expending a lot of ammunition. These are Weapon systems that are being used in support of modern ground combat on a large scale. That means they consume a lot of ammo. They've consumed one third of the stock. That's America's stock. Remember, we didn't build a Ukrainian stock. We're pulling down from our own. That means if the United States were ever to go to war, um, we're already one third down and we haven't even fired the first shot. We'll run out of Heimar's ammunition. Early on in any future conflict, and indeed the Iranians, or the Ukrainians, are going to run out of this ammunition. They're going to be demanding more, and then the United States is in a quandary. We further deplete our stockpile of HIMARS ammunition, knowing that doing so uh, has a direct impact on our ability to fight in uh, a modern conflict against a peer-level force. Or do we tell the Iranians or the, the Ukrainians, sorry? No joy can't help you on this one. It's the same thing with the M777 ammunition. Um, we, don't, we haven't been making a lot of ammunition. Uh, we haven't been anticipating this kind of fight. When we fought, again, you know, we, we have standards based upon um, you know, projected um, consumption levels. During the Gulf War, Desert Storm, we fired 60,000 artillery rounds for the entire conflict. The Russians are firing 60,000 rounds a day.
2: Oh my God. Plant
6: war where we fire 60,000 rounds a day. We plan for a 60,000 round over a period of weeks. Um, We don't have the ammunition and we can't build it overnight. This is a problem for us.
0: Scott, can I switch gears real quickly in our last couple of minutes here? Um, Over the past, I don't know, I think it's been about two or three days, over the Labor Day holiday, um, following President Biden's very, um, what some would describe as a very divisive speech. After that, he came back to the White House and then he spoke to the press and somebody asked him if he agreed with some members of Congress in labeling, designating Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism, at which President Biden at that time said, no, that he doesn't support that. And that's all he said. He would not support the idea of labeling Russia a state sponsor. And uh, there are members of Congress, including Lindsey Graham, And Richard Blumenthal, who are pushing this notion that President Biden, this is bipartisan support, that President Biden should designate Russia a state sponsor of terror. Uh, And apparently, Tony Blinken has backed off of this idea too. Um, So the higher ups in the administration are saying no. Meanwhile, you have uh, members of Congress, neocons, you have members of Congress saying, no, no, let's label Russia a state sponsor. Why is Congress pushing one thing, but then you have the State Department and the White House now saying, "No, no, 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 I'm not going to do that."
6: Well, Congress is involved in um, the crude game of domestic American politics. That is say- saying that which appeases their constituency. So it's it's just it's 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 free electoral advertisement for a senator to say, "We want to designate Russia as a state-sponsored care, because most Americans are dumb enough to go, "Yeah, that's a good idea." Um Meanwhile. Tony Blinken and Joe Biden live in a different world. They live in a world where Lavrov and Putin made it just absolutely 100% clear. If you designate us as a state sponsor of terror, we will sever all relationships with you. We're going to withdraw our embassy. We're going to kick you out. No relations whatsoever. None. We're cutting you off. And anybody with a brain knows that that is the first step towards a war. Um, Because without diplomacy, without that kind of... um, you know, diplomatic, uh, buffer, um, nations come into conflict, friction develops and shots are fired and people die. And, uh, with despite all the, you know, chest pumping that, that, uh, all the neocons and everybody does on TV, uh, we can't win a war against Russia, which is it simply can't, there's no scenario anybody can come up with where the United States, um, in the next five years has sufficient military force to, um, engage and defeat Russia in a conventional war in Europe. Just isn't going to happen. Biden knows this. Blinken knows this. Miley knows this. Everybody knows this. And the only way we prevent this, because we've created a very dangerous situation in Europe right now by fomenting this Ukrainian conflict. It's solely on us. We made this happen. And, um, and now we're sitting there going, oh, my goodness, we're going to lose. We're going to lose. And the only way we prevent this from spinning out of control is we have to have a modicum of diplomatic interaction with Russia, and we lose that the second we play cheap political games uh, for domestic purposes only, because it doesn't achieve anything on the global front, uh, calling Russia a state-sponsor or uh, a terrorist uh, nation state-sponsor of terror. So, uh, fortunately, Biden and, Biden and Blinken um, have their uh, adult pants on, meanwhile, Graham, Blumenthal, and others are still wearing diapers.
0: <laughs> Scott, we'll leave that right there. Appreciate you coming on to to talk about you know th- this nuclear stuff because I think a lot of people are very nervous. And uh, for me, I'm I'm kind of a, a policy nerd, so I appreciate you hitting on this last And the comment.
1: dog in the background is waiting for him to get that's off right. the call. Yeah,
0: that's <laughs> right.
1: Dog is, my dog is nervous about it, too,
6: apparently.
0: <laughs> yes, our friend Scott Ritter, former U.N. weapons inspector, weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. You can follow Scott only on Telegram because he is banned everywhere else. Follow him at Scott Ritter on Telegram. Scott, thank you so much. All right, let's take a quick break before we get to our callers. Get your fingers fired up, people. Call us at 202 521 1320. We're taking calls right after the break. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik.
3: Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome
2: back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik, and we are taking your calls at 202-521-1320. Our first caller of the day is none other than Tarif. Tarif, are you there?
4: Uh, how y'all doing?
2: All right, I'm going to start you off. On behalf... Free?
4: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, Free Assange. Always. He's very... key. He's a key component to the situation was going on. He's very key. Um... I want to talk about something. Oh, um, I brought it up before, but I won't bring it up again. I'm, I want to bring this up again. The Republicans take over in November, right? In the, if they take over and then they have a large amount of them that takes over, what they can do, they, re- they can really cause the DNC problems. They can turn around. And they can look into if they won't, I mean, they can look into the Jeff Epstein list to find out who it is. You probably you might have some FBI agents so upset that they didn't really take um, that the um, DOJ didn't really release the names on that list or go after the people. Somebody might leak it and other things like that, right? Go after them on a whole bunch of things, and also dealing with uh <clears throat> that's going to keep the DNC busy and the um, the. Um, the Republicans can also turn around and investigate January the twentieth. You know the um, November the third elections. You know it'd be a hot topic, but they'd be in power, and it'd be uh, they have the DNC hands so tied up dealing with Jeff F. Steinle and other things of that nature that the DNC wouldn't have enough energy to fight them on. Looking at the January um uh, excuse me November the third. Elections—you never know. I mean, if they can find anything that happened out happening in um, Pennsylvania or Georgia, you know, they can probably, you know, overturn the uh, apple cart. You know what I'm saying? That was in shockwaves. shockwaves. You know, and you already know they already um, have the masters. I mean, um, Trump already asked for the master um, um, attorney, whatever you call that—the special master. Right. Yeah. So it seems like things not going a DNC way, and it could be like, um, like some people say, it could be the end of the DNC if of all these things start popping off next year, especially with my case with Mikey Debakey, contaminated water in Houston come out and other things of that nature, it, a lot of people can be re- exposed and you know, embarrassed, and also a whole bunch of people can go to jail. So we'll see what happens if the GOP have the Kahunis really step forward to, you know, do real investigation. Very,
2: very good thought. I had to break it to you, but you don't think that there were Republicans that were on those flight logs? You don't think that that, you know, was a universal issue across the board, that it was only Democrats on that plane?
4: Well. Both, side. both sides, both
0: mm, sides. There's a lot of people, Tarif. A lot. Some long, I heard. Cool I heard had a very thick black book. That's all I got to say. But yeah, good points, Tarif. Okay. Always appreciate those points. We got another caller in queue. Our friend Brave out in ATL. Good morning, Brave.
9: Hey, good morning. All. How you guys doing this morning?
0: Good, good. It's good Wednesday. morning, Profit Brave.
9: <laughs> good morning, Tarif. Um, and to Tarif Tarif's point. I mean, Chris Chris Tucker was on that plane, you know what I'm saying? So anybody, everybody, like, they had access to everyone. Um, I, I wanted to touch on the segment with the minister this morning, um, the point they raised about... Uh, the people that live in these communities, where typically, so you have like, I guess you could say, the liberals or or leftists um, making uh, broad stroke claims of oppression and why certain things that are being passed aren't good for the communities that they don't actually belong to or even visit in most cases. Um, I, I know here in the, I know here in Georgia, man, we got it bad, like. The, the way gentrification has worked here in a, in, a, in, a, in Atlanta, uh, you can have the hood right next to a million-dollar community, right? And that's all throughout Atlanta. And crime is rampant. Like, I mean, it's it's very crazy, and it's more so kids. It's more young people than anything starting all the way from like 13 to 15. I mean, murdering people. And it doesn't stop on just one side of one side of town. As a matter of fact, a lot of it happens in places you would think these things shouldn't happen. So. I'm bringing it up to to, um, to make a point. Um, although I, I uh, am thoroughly against uh, Biden and his crime bill, I remember um, I remember his talking heads during the uh, primaries making the point is that uh, communities, black communities, back in the day, were begging for the uh, crime bill, some of the things they were they were advocating for in that bill. And it makes me consider that I don't want, I hate to give Biden any kind of credit, and it is not my intent to. But it does make me um, consider that because I know as a fact uh, today, not today now, but I mean, in, in, in current times, uh, activists and communities, they, they're asking for more support. They just want to be able to trust the police, not be killed by the police when they're called. That's why I just kind of get your thoughts on that. And also um, your thoughts on what do you think is going on with the, our kids? Because something is seriously being done to our kids that, and I'm not talking about against them, Talk about the bonds that they are. That
0: they are uh, yeah, you're you're a papa. You have a a young man, young man. How I mean, how do you approach that with with him to keep him from being I don't know influenced by whether it be video games or or bad rap music or bad movies.
9: We have a, we have a military household. My wife is part military. I'm prime military. My son's right now. He's like yeah. <laughs> So we don't play that, and I mean, our kids. Uh, but it's not like it's not to say that we haven't had to deal with issues. I mean, we're, we're parents, and we got kids, especially with with two of our kids in particular, my sons, laughing. But uh, we don't play that, man. Um, but to to that point, uh, one of my one of our youngest sons, two of his friends, one of his friends were one of his friends was murdered. Right, uh, my, my, my my older son, his one of his friends was murdered, and one of his one of our younger sons, his friends was shot. And none of these people live in areas, none of these kids live in areas where that that, that would be a typical situation. You you know what I'm saying? so it's just more um, evidence that it's not just about crime on the other side of town because there's a mentality with these kids now that I don't, I don't, they're they're numb in a way that, I mean, I'm an an 80s baby, right? I was, I was up in town where everybody was trying to pretend like they were Crips and blood. You, me, both. In Compton, right? Right, right, right. And. And even in the and even the violence then and some of the the kids then have nothing on the attitude of some of these children now. They just don't
0: care. Right. It's very different. I grew up in a in a in a in a gang neighborhood. Um we would, you know, at Whittier that, that borders Pico Rivera and East Los Angeles and, and we would back home, it's called Navadio. And we had multiple different gangs. All surrounding the neighborhood I lived in, my one little cul-de-sac was like the one street that didn't have any gang members on it for for whatever reason. But I grew up understanding the, the real impacts of gun violence. I know several people who have been murdered. Uh, guns, knives, I mean, you name it, right? And it seems like people have forgotten that these are these are real and these are lasting impacts. And, you know, having only the bad guys, I guess, left with the guns, it kind of makes me feel a little bit of disparity because, again, you can't trust the police to show up on time, in time. Uh, Our friend Brave, always good points. Um, Keep doing good with those kiddos. they are grown up to be good people. Brave, thank you for that. Yeah, people listening this morning. Yeah. I mean, it hits home, right, when you start talking about kids going to school. Forget duck and cover or stop, drop, and roll. This is like— Here's what you do when a mass shooter comes into your school, third grader.
1: Your own backyard. Ugh,
0: school season. Back in. That's why I said it's fall, Reese. It's it is fall.
1: Still <laughs> summer
2: until it the is.
0: 22nd. It is fall. It is still summer. All right. We'll leave that right there so we can fight this out because it is, it is fall. Reese says it's summer. Uh, you have been listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. We'll be back with the final hour of the show. Don't go anywhere. We will be back with you again shortly here on Fault Lines Radio Sputnik.
3: Fault Lines.
2: Live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C., good morning. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us on Rumble. Hey, Rumblers, 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the D.C. Metro. We're also in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM and 104.7 AM on your radio dial. I am the unbridled vice of Legalese, M. Reese, here with (laughs) the Durag Conservative. Atomic MAGA. The Atomic MAGA temporary (laughs) guest and the undisputed vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila Chan. And you are listening to the show that dares to go there. This is Fault Lines.
1: We have a name. We, we got, have yeah, a tag. Say line. it again.
0: What is the tagline? The unbridled Vice of legalese. Now, I don't... Is that a legal term, V's? What, what is V's? V's is a... It means
2: a strong... V-E-S-E... It's a strong gust of
1: wind. Okay, so you're coming in like that a strong some gust words. of wind hey
2: now. Listen. That's what we're doing Above you're coming my pay in like the a strong gust of a wind violent draught of wind and oh don't be violent oh my no sometimes violence. i wake up choosing violence <laughs> i'm definitely yes I, I'm, a, I'm gonna acknowledge it I, i'm a
0: scorpio Ooh. i wake up choosing violence so i yes. literally never used never heard that word Me never either. used it before this is the first that jeopardy words i'm telling you a jeopardy e.
1: storm. i like
0: it okay okay so Run you'll be able it. to Wrong say with it,
1: that. There's no tongue tie. No, no, your tongue won't get twisted saying it. Right. You got to, you
0: just... got to field test
2: it. And yeah, I'm yeah. gonna work on it. We're we're gonna field see. test the it. The Rumbler's liked it, so okay. you know.
0: Yeah, you try it out a couple days. Rumbler's, let me know. Uh, we'll see. Okay, I can get with that.
1: I like I it. I learned a new word. I I I never heard these. Yeah. And I'm, I, I used to read the dictionary growing up. So. <laughs> <laughs> so this is definitely a new one for me, but I like it. And you have the wreaths the and the legalese. Yeah, you know.
2: That's the best lawyer. Holly Star, I have to thank Holly. Shout in the out Rumble Room. Holly in the Rumble Room. She started it off of legal legalese, and so that's how we got
7: here.
1: They We've are active her. in Five the Rumble journey. Room. Yeah, they oh,
0: need man. to join us on Rumble. If they want to get involved in the action... Hop onto Rumble, smash that Rumble button, as Jamaro would say, "Don't break your computer," but smash that bu- that Rumble button. Bumble is something else. Rumble button, and join in on the action. The chat room is where it's at.
1: Absolutely love it. Absolutely love it.
0: We got awesome. some news to
2: get We've to. We've got some news to get to, guys, and I'm gonna get us into our headlines. In national news. The Federal Bureau of Investigation FBI agents who searched former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence in August seized a document shedding light on a foreign government's military defenses and its nuclear capabilities, according to The Washington Post. According to government court filings cited by the outlet, the FBI has recovered more than 300 classified documents from Mar-a-Lago. 184 in a set of 15 boxes sent to the National Archives and Records Administration earlier in January, with 38 more handed over by a Trump lawyer to investigators in June. The court-appointed FBI raid on August 8th seized a batch of more than 100 additional documents, which purportedly contained the information about a foreign government's nuclear defense readiness. Sources were cited as revealing with most of massachusetts being a solidly blue state many of the elections are a foregone conclusion which makes the primary elections more significant and despite massachusetts blue leanings the state current the state's current governor is a republican and 2012 gop presidential candidate mitt romney preceded him so republicans can win elections in massachusetts Speaking of elections for governor, Attorney General Maura Healey secured the Democratic nomination for the top office in the state. She was running unopposed, though. Sonia Chang-Diaz was still on the ballot because she dropped out too late to be removed. Despite officially dropping out, Chang-Diaz still received roughly 15 percent of the vote as of press time, likely from early voting. If Healey wins the general election, she will become the first elected female governor of Massachusetts. Jane Swift was acting governor from 2001 to 2003 after taking over for Paul Salucci, but was not elected to the position. Healy will face off against Jeff Dowell, a former state representative who was endorsed by former president Donald Trump. Dowell beat Doty with 56.3% of the vote with only 35% reporting at press time. Over on the West Coast, West Coast, California's power, grid, California's power grid has declared an energy emergency, warning that it may institute rolling blackouts to curb a surge in demand, which has hit an all-time record highs as residents crank up the A.C. to escape an unprecedented heat wave. The California Independent System operator issued a Level 3 emergency alert on Tuesday night, saying electricity supplies were beginning to run low in the face of record heat and demand and that there could be outages. If needed, ISO could order utilities to begin rotating power outages to maintain stability of the electrical grid, the agency said, adding that Tuesday's peak electricity demand is expected to exceed 52,000 megawatts, a new historic all-time high for the grid. The ISO went on to explain that contained power outages will help to maintain reliability and avoid cascading blackouts, ensuring the system doesn't collapse into uncontrolled, unplanned power failures. Uh Uh-oh, that's the last thing you need is it for it to be 90 degrees with a power outage. My goodness. In the fall. In the (laughs) summer. In international news, newly elected UK Conservative Party leader and Prime Minister Liz Truss broke with tradition on Tuesday. Her telephone conversation with U.S. counterpart Joe Biden came after her first call to Ukraine's President, Volodymyr Zelensky. Trust, long known as a proponent of her predecessor, Boris Johnson's assertive anti-Russia stance, has vowed repeatedly during the Tory leadership campaign that after gaining keys to number 10 Downing Street, she would start off by pledging Britain's support for Ukraine. The Prime Minister spoke to the President of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, this evening to reiterate the United Kingdom's steadfast support for Ukraine's freedom and democracy. In her first call with the counterpart since becoming Prime Minister, she reiterated to the Ukrainian leader that he had her full backing and Ukraine could depend on the UK's assistance for the long term. A Downing Street spokeswoman has told us that President Zelensky has is also issued an invitation for trust to visit Kiev, which the spokesperson said Trust was delighted to accept. Wow, making friends already. The G7 countries have gotten another thing coming if they think they can dictate energy prices to Russia via price cap. Russian President Vladimir Putin has said, you asked about capping prices for our energy resources, this is an absolutely stupid decision. If someone tries to implement it, it will not lead to anything good for those who do so, Putin said during a panel discussion at the Eastern Economic Forum and Vladivostok, Vladivostok on Wednesday. Commenting on the energy crisis being experienced by European countries, the resident president emphasized that it is impossible to impair objective economic laws. Everything will come back on those who do so like a boomerang. Restrictions will only lead to new supply imbalances and price hikes, Putin stressed. The International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA has called for an end to all military activity around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and insisted that shelling in the area must stop. The agency's report on that situation in Ukraine, published on Tuesday, stopped short of identifying the culprits targeting the Russian-held facility. It said any military activity, such as shelling, within or in the vicinity of a nuclear facility has the power, has the potential to cause an unacceptable radiological consequence, the IAEA report said, adding that seven pillars of nuclear safety, the seven pillars, the seven pillars of nuclear safety have all been compromised at the site. The IAEA recommends that shelling on site and in its vicinity should be stopped immediately, to avoid any further damages to the plant and associated facilities for the safety of the operating staff and to maintain the physical integrity to support safe and secure operation, the agency said. Adding that this would require an agreement by all relevant parties to the establishment of a nuclear safety and security protection zone around the ZNPP. Zaporizhia is Eastern, I'm sorry, Zaporizhia is Eastern, is European's largest nuclear power plant. Along with the nearby city of Innergodar, it has been under Russian control since March. Artillery, drone, and rocket attacks began in July, damaging cooling systems, power lines, and other facilities. The Pentagon is prepared to target China's core logistical support should it show aggression towards Taiwan according to U.S. General and Deputy Chief of Staff for Air Force Futures, Clinton Hinoti, who warned that during an Atlantic Council panel on the future of air warfare on Tuesday, we're gonna make it really, really hard to do offensive maneuvers against our friends. And I would hope that our potential adversary, China, might think about that if they are contemplating the difficulty of getting around a ninety mi- across a 90-mile straight and going against Taiwan, Hinoti explained. I would just hope they would realize we're not just going to let their logistics flow." The general had returned to the subject of a potential war with China after he was asked about the one lesson he hoped the US military might take from the war in Ukraine, which was the focus of the event held by the think tank's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. He also floated the threat that of a Taiwan invasion to illustrate how the U.S.'s strategic approach needed to focus on maintaining the current balance of power rather than overthrowing or upsetting its centers. Now, on this day in history, back in 1901, the Boxer Rebellion in Qing Dynasty, which is minor, modern day China, officially ends with the signing of the Boxer Protocol. In 1921, in Atlantic City, New Jersey, the first Miss America pageant, a two-day event was held. In 1953, Nikita Khrushchev Khrushchev is elected first secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. In 1996, rapper and actor Tupac Shakur is fatally shot in a drive-by shooting in Los Angeles, Nevada he succumbs to his injury six days later. Hail Mary. And in 2021, Bitcoin becomes legal tender in El Salvador. And we're still hoping that it takes a rebound. I am Reese Everson. This is Wednesday, September the 7th. And these are your news
0: headlines. And you are listening to
2: Fault Lines.
0: All right, let's take a quick break before we get to our next guest. We're going to talk about some domestic issues, um, primarily the issue of Governor Greg Abbott of Texas basically exporting the migrants crossing at his border into supposed, uh, what do they call them, sanctuary cities like Chicago, uh, New York City,
1: Washington, D.C.,
0: and right here. The belly of the beast. All these mayors of these cities all say, we love migrants. We love them. Bring come the, on, come on. Everybody's welcome. So Greg Abbott said, all right, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And he started shipping them. And now all three mayors are like, wait a minute. Hold up. Hold up. Get me the National Guard, <laughs> Bowser said. And the DOD was like, um, no, ma'am. Not going to happen. Mm, no. Mm, no. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. With immigration attorney Susan Pie, this is an you know she's an expert in this field, um, and and I don't know if there is <laughs> any legal recourse that any of these mayors have, but we'll we'll leave that to Susan to explain to us. Uh, she knows all the ins and outs of the legal loopholes there. So sit tight, we're going to talk about immigration coming up right after this break. On you're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik.
3: Fault Lines.
0: Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, sitting with guest co-host this week, Malik Abdul... And M. Reese Everson, we are being joined now by Susan Pai. She's an immigration attorney. She has a degree in psychology from UCLA, uh, where she worked at the internationally recognized UCLA Brain Mapping Lab. She attended law school at the University of Louisville and at Nagoya University in Japan and has assisted the Senate Judiciary Committee on Fraud and Abuse Issues in Business, Immigration, Civil Matters, Susan has also submitted testimony to the House Judiciary Committee on humanitarian immigration issues. So she is the perfect person to bring on to discuss uh, this warring of one governor and three mayors. Good morning, Susan. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Manila. How are you? Very good, uh, as Jamar would say, better now that you are with us. Um, and he sends his regards, by the way. Uh, but let's talk about this. This. Issue right now: one warring governor with three different, uh, what we would, I guess, we can label left-leaning cities that claim to be sanctuary cities—Chicago, uh, New York City, and right here in D.C. Governor Abbott, for those who don't know, has been shipping migrants. Um, some, you know, some media reports are saying this is against some of the migrants' will. Other, other migrants have actually talked to the press. Um, A lot of them Spanish speakers saying, no, no, I want to come to New York. I have family here, so I'm glad I was able to come here or Chicago or here in D.C. So a lot of thousands of people have been shipped away from uh, from the state of Texas. And obviously this costs money, but it's actually in terms of um, hard cost. It's actually cheaper for Governor Abbott to foot the bus bill than to keep them uh, in the state of Texas, and then you know he have to house them and do all of that um, so what just broad strokes, what do you think of Governor Abbott's new mode here of fixing the migrant issue in his home state by exporting them
8: out? Well, you know, I'm generally not in agreement with uh, the policies or the actions that Governor Abbott takes. however, in this case um I can actually sympathize with him, although his stated reasons um, are not really, uh, in, they're not really comporting with uh, my beliefs. He's hes talking about the, um, under the Trump administration, he, you know, he liked the Remain in Mexico program, the Title 42 program, building the wall, but those are actually not fixes to the problem that he's trying to highlight by shipping migrants to other cities. So until Congress uh, changes the law regarding people claiming asylum at the U.S. border or and or we also uh, renege our signature from international agreements regarding the same right that people have to present at our border to claim asylum, the problem will not be fixed. So um, I understand what he's doing, but his stated reasons and his um, – desires to go back to the things that the Trump administration were doing is not going to fix the problem. And in fact, when Trump was president, uh, they still did a lot of catch and release where they would encounter illegal uh, crossers with um, minors. And in those cases, they would release them into the United States. And that was in the Trump administration. So it's not super different than what was happening during the Trump administration.
2: So then Basically, hi, this is Attorney Reese. Thank you for coming on this morning. So so basically, we have a $12 million political posturing from Greg Abbott, because if that's the case, if the policies are very reflective of what's been going on in the past, um, then Governor Abbott's uh, spending more than $12 million, according to the Emergency Management Department documents, um, to pay wind transportation to bus these thousands of migrants from Texas borders to D.C. and to New York. Um, if he's using this, you know, if he's using the money of the people just to make a political message, would you say that that's, you know, just posturing and it's, it's a
8: poor use of funds? Well, I think it is definitely, you know, very cynical political posturing, you know, in an election year. It clearly, that's what it is. On the other hand, though, um, I do believe him when he says that $12 million in transportation is less than uh, what it would cost to keep the migrants in his home state. So, um, you know, like New York is complaining about receiving 100 migrants a day when at the southern border, uh, it's mostly like Arizona, Texas, and then California are receiving uh, on track to receive over 2 million migrants at their borders in one fiscal year. So yes, I I absolutely believe it's cynical political posturing and it's timed in a way to affect midterm elections. But um, on the other hand, I can understand what he's doing and why he's doing it. And overall, it's going to cost his state less.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Susan, thank thanks for joining us. This is Malik here. Uh, the word that I actually use is political theater. It is obviously political theater, what Abbott is doing. And I don't think that he's doing this. Um, and, and speaking to that, it's not that he's seeing this as a panacea for what's happening, but it's really more so to draw attention to what all of the border states themselves have been facing. As you said, and many people know, when these migrants are actually released, they're just released into the country. The border states consume the majority of them. But what we're seeing now, and we're here in Washington, D.C., and a city that um, just reiterated, I believe it was in twenty twenty our asylum status. You know, it was just um, you know, our sanctuary city status that the council and the mayor and many people were happy to talk about once that first bus came to washington, d c, and then our mayor tried to um uh, get the National guard, well, assistance from the National guard. um, the Biden administration denied that one. She tried again. They denied the next request because they said that this is not the function of the National Guard. And unfortunately, our city has to um, bear the brunt of the cost of that in the same way that's what's happening in New York City, because I believe last month the city approved or um, it was about a six million dollar package that they now have um, to actually benefit the migrants. So it's a real problem. And we do know that now um, the mayor of New York is sending a delegation down to the border to see basically see what people who've been following this particularly those in Texas, have been experiencing all along. So absolutely, it's political theater, but it seems to be at least some attention drawn to the fact that it shouldn't be just the border states that are really having to deal with this.
8: Right. And originally, it was, you know, when we signed the international treaties, like in the 60s, and then we codified that into our law in 1980 it was envisioned that uh, people who claimed asylum at the border would be detained in immigration detention centers, which are, for all intents and purposes, mostly private prisons, uh, while their asylum case was pending. And if they won, then they'd be released into the United States. And if they were lost, they, in theory, would be shipped from detention back to their home country. So there are two things that are complicating um, that scenario that they had envisioned so long ago when the law was passed and the treaties were signed. And first is that we have uh, almost a two million immigration case backlog, many of which are asylum cases. And so that means that the average amount of time that passes before an asylum case gets tried in immigration court is five years. But many times it's six, seven, eight, nine, and even 10 years. That's not uncommon. So we don't have the facilities or the money to house asylum applicants in immigration detention for five to 10 years. Secondly, when they're traveling with children, um, they're not allowed to keep them in detention for over a certain amount of time because of a lawsuit that has since um, transpired. And then, um, and then with, um, uh, and I'm sorry, that was, those were the two reasons. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And what about when at
0: these so-called sanctuary cities, Susan, um, you know, for example, in New York City, Mayor Adams, and, and granted, yeah, he's he's new in this role. He's only been, you know, mayor a few months, um, but he's getting a lot of criticism for, you know, there's obviously in, in all major cities, there's always a homelessness crisis, always a homelessness problem, right, in all major cities. And right now he's getting a lot of flack because of these migrants who have been shipped up to New York City that. He has somehow managed to scramble to unlock the doors to um basically defunct hotels or motels in the city um and get these emergency services going on to to house and home these uh, migrants that have been bused there by Greg Abbott. Now, what sort of um, I don't know if there's if it's uh, necessarily a legal problem. This might be more of um, i don't know, a municipality issue. And maybe you have the answer. But what sort of tools do municipalities have, you know, in their uh, in their tool belt to be able to handle? I guess he wasn't expecting this influx, but here it is. So how you know what's in his tool belt that he's able to unlock these doors and suddenly have room and, and a place and, and help for the migrants that have been brought to him?
8: So in my understanding, um, New York is a city where they guarantee shelter for all people that are in the city. Um, So they have like a no um, homelessness, like a a no-no shelter policy, basically. And that then applies to the migrants. So they're under uh, tremendous pressure to find housing for the migrants that uh, arrive there without notice from Texas. Um, Traditionally, the tools that They have, I would imagine, are the same that the tools that are being utilized at the border to house the migrants as well. And that's the private sector or NGOs. But those resources are fast being used up. And so they're having to, like, dip into other buckets in order to come up with solutions. Um, So I, I think what that does is it highlights to the mayors of those cities what the problems in Texas are. And so it accomplishes what Governor Abbott wants to uh, project, which is these are the resources that are being taken by the you know, inordinate influx of migrants to our border states.
1: And, and that's just, uh, just a very good point. And, and you mentioned the settlement, and I think you're referring to was that probably the Flores settlement. And it kind of got muddled during the Trump administration because the Trump administration implemented a zero tolerance policy, but the Flores settlement itself was signed by Clinton. It was agreed to in um, during the Clinton era. And what it essentially meant, just for our audience out there, is that when the U.S. captured um, the the parents or, you know, the migrants coming over, they had within a certain period of day that I believe it was, they couldn't hold the children longer than 20 days. Um, they could keep the parents, but they couldn't hold the children longer than 20 days without releasing them. Um, they could either put them in the shelter um, or release the entire family, which is kind of how we came up with, with the whole idea of the catch and release policy. Um, you've been following this for a while. What do you think, because, you know, politics is politics, and typically politics has gotten in the way of any type of substantive immigration reform, but what do you think needs to be a serious next step? I know um, Barack Obama tried with, the, with DACA, um, but those were, you know, referencing children who were actually here, but what do you consider a substantive next step?
8: Well, I think at the very foundation of the problem that we're seeing now, you know, it is it is untenable. I don't think anybody can deny that over 2 million um, asylum uh, uh, presenters at the border in a fiscal year, that is an untenable rate of uh, migrants at the border. I think the border is also becoming uh, corrupted in its in its use in that people from like Russia or India or Ukraine are taking commercial flights from their countries to Mexico to come through the border because that's a more expeditious way of them to, come to the United States than applying for refugee status from their home countries or applying for asylum from their home countries. So um, I, I think that the you know, other than changing the, our status as a signatory to those international laws allowing asylum and also changing the law that was passed in 1980, um, we have to do more with the, what we call the expedited asylum process. Uh, and that is, that would only be accomplished by providing, I, in my opinion, asylum-only courts at the border. And so it would be like a rocket docket like what we had for home foreclosures. But there are are problems, you know, that come with that as well. When you have any kind of a rocket docket case or court structure, Um, so I, I think there's another thing also that people don't understand: the the people who are coming for economic reasons and not necessarily true asylum seekers, of of which there are many, because you know the asylum approval rate ultimately is far less than you know the number of people who come here presenting asylum. Um, We have to get rid of, I think, what we call the ten year bar, which is If you've been in the country illegally for over one year, once you step foot outside of the United States, you're not allowed to come back in for 10 more years. If we didn't have that 10-year bar, many people who are economic migrants would voluntarily deport and return to their country. They're sending money home to buy houses and set up farms. They would like to go home if they had the opportunity to come back and legally work um, before that 10 years is up. So those are three things that I think... uh, you know, going from the foundation to like some just uh, congressional fixes that can
0: uh, that can occur. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that one, Susan. Um, I'm glad you brought up the the whole uh, European refugee issue because um, it's not quite I don't think we're quite at crisis level. So I don't want to, you know, do a George W. Bush, you know, orange alert or whatever. Like we were we always had those terror alerts. Remember, they gave us colors. We're not quite at orange or anything just yet. Um, but It appears that the Biden administration is now kind of uh, trying to push uh, Ukrainian refugees, um, trying to stop them from coming through the southern border. They're saying we don't want to take any more through the southern border. However, More recently, uh, so far, only 861 Ukrainians came through the traditional refugee resettlement program between February and July. That's the latest data coming out of thedispatch.com. They're also reporting that nearly 25,000 Ukrainians came through the southern border between February and July. 861 of them have so far been resettled. Um, Meanwhile, if a poll taken by PBS uh, with AP and NORC, the Center for Public Affairs Research Poll, shows that 65% of Americans favor accepting Ukrainian refugees into the U.S. Only 15% oppose. 19% say they're kind of neutral to it. So number one, it seems like these refugees, uh, whether or not they're the Ukrainian ones coming through the southern border or elsewhere, they're getting um, an expedited process and when you compare that to what this poll looks like, saying that, and uh, that's a huge, overwhelming majority, 65% polled, and this is coming out of PBS publishing it, saying that Americans favor, favor the Ukrainian refugees over others. Doesn't that look like, on its face, look like something pretty racist?
8: Um, You know, I can't... I can't say one way or the other what that 65% represents. I I can say this that I do believe that the uh, Ukrainian refugees are in a in a different situation than most other refugees or asylum seekers in there, in that they are engaged in an active war at this time. However, that being said, the fact that so many Ukrainian refugees came to the southern border instead of um, applying um, either through humanitarian or parole or as a refugee from their home country. Um, Says a lot about what the southern border has become, and I I think that that right there is a testament to you know the fact that the way that the southern border is run, it is it is a broken system right now, Um, and you know what happened with Title Forty Two is that they just uh, unilaterally uh, accepted Ukrainians from Title Forty Two and did not repatriate them to their home country because they're in an active war, whereas other people you know who maybe their countries are not in active war but they're turmoil, nonetheless, like Haitians, um, they were repatriated to their home country. So, if you look at um, the statistics, I think maybe you'll have a better understanding of you know what it really means. Uh, and there's a good website called Track Immigration where they keep all the statistics on um, turnbacks and illegal encounters and encounters at the border. And it's Track without a K, so T R A C Immigration.
2: Thank you, Susan. And this is Reese. Thank you for coming on. I mean, and to just piggyback off that point that Manila made, not only are non-European or non-European descent refugees treated, um, you know, differently, but if if I recall the, the visual of seeing um, Haitian. the Haitians, the mountaineers or the, what were they called, the security? The, Mountain the border police agents, the border whatever, yeah. agents on horseback, with whips. So, you know, let's just keep that in context. You've got Haitians being met with whips, you've got Hispanics being met with buses, but Ukrainian refugees are pretty much getting open arms.
0: Yeah, I kind, Susan, I kind of feel like, um, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but obviously after the Afghanistan withdrawal, there were thousands of people in Afghanistan waiting to come here and get resettled as well as part of the refugee uh, resettlement program that the United States offers. And it seems like, because now we're over a year after the withdrawal, it seems like the Ukrainian refugees are getting... Their their stuff through the docket a lot faster. They're getting resettled a lot faster. Um, A lot of the Afghans are stuck in this legal limbo still. Some of them have been brought here, but we're, I mean, and I'm talking here locally, um, but we're not talking the same numbers that have actually had their cases processed and and have been put into these programs, um, these resettlement programs, and have, you know, found homes for them or what have you. It seems like the Ukrainians are getting... Um, a, a, an express pass. It's like when you go to Disneyland, you pay the extra bump and you can basically cut in line. Yeah. Um, that it's kind of like, it seems like the Ukrainians are getting a, a faster pass. Is it only because of the ongoing conflict or is there, you know, some sort of legal answer, uh, some kind of law that we have that says that these people can do that and these other people can't?
8: No, it's absolutely a a policy decision, and you are correct. Like, my son and I just came back from a vacation at Universal Studios, and we had to pay a whole bunch of money to get the Fast Pass, which is what you're talking about, like, at the Disneyland line. And that's exactly what's happening with Ukrainians, where we are still waiting for some humanitarian parole applications. Well, the vast majority of humanitarian parole applications for Afghans, including those who helped the American military, And whose lives are currently under threat by the Taliban as a result of that, um, we're still waiting for their cases to be dispositioned when the Uniting for Ukraine um, applications are going through sometimes in days or weeks. So, absolutely, we definitely see on the ground that Ukrainians are very much being treated as VIPs or preferential um, entrants to the United States. And it's a vast, difference in in policy and processing.
2: And you know what? Someone in the rumble room said something critical, and I'm glad she brought it to my remembrance, Scary Girl. Um, She'll never forget seeing the African students who were stuck during once the onset of the, the war started, the fighting in Ukraine, trying to rescue themselves and being told that they could not get on the trains leaving Ukraine. To go to Poland. They were literally being told they were not welcome and that there was not space for them. So from the very start, we are seeing a disparity in how people of color are being treated. And the Ukraines have played a part in that, in not letting people of color um, leave and and be on the buses and trains with them. And and so I think that it's critical that we keep that in mind.
8: Yeah, I think that, unfortunately, racism permeates through almost every facet of our culture, including you know how we dole out immigration benefits or humanitarian benefits for certain foreign nationals. Um, and I, I, what I definitely don't understand as a lawyer, and I, I don't like this, is that when you see how fast they're processing Ukrainian application in days or weeks, and then you compare that to the Afghans, You know, you see that it is possible for the United States to process, you know, applicants faster or in a more expeditious way when an emergency requires it, but they don't give that benefit to um, equally uh, positioned uh, foreign nationals.
0: Absolutely. That's just that's not a matter of opinion. That is that is an actual on the ground fact that um, you we can we can. We don't have to look at the, let's say, Spanish-speaking population coming through the southern border. We can compare war-torn Afghanistan, 20 years worth of onslaught by the U.S. 20 years. Imagine how many people that need to come through, that need to come here, and we have not resettled. We have not taken the U.S. so far in, in a matter of six months has taken in more than 150,000. We orig- originally put the benchmark at 100,000 for Ukrainian refugees. And I'm not saying that they don't need it. I- I'm not saying that at all. But we originally put the benchmark at 100,000. We're at um, 150,000. So we're already 50% over what we said we would do. Meanwhile, you have the Afghans who are in the tens and tens and tens of thousands that have literally helped the United States for 20 years. These people are stuck in legal limbo because of our outrageous immigration refugee policies that have, you know, there's this diaspora of Afghan refugees that are stuck somewhere between Europe and third-party countries waiting to come to the U.S. and we cannot seem to process them. But then when you compare it to these blonde-haired, blue-eyed people that come from Ukraine, suddenly, poof, they're here. And I'm not saying they don't need that. I'm not trying to talk down on the Ukrainians and that they shouldn't be here and they don't have, you know, they don't have a real need. But when you compare it to the, the absolute number of Afghans over the, the course of 20 years, how is it so impossible for us to expedite them or take them seriously, whereas we're taking the Ukrainians more seriously?
8: Right. I mean, when I started seeing how fast they were approving the Ukrainian cases, I was really shocked because, you know, at that time, we we're already like over six months into the uh, Afghan cases. So there's definitely a huge disparity and it's definitely um, something that is purposeful. So that's it was very shocking at the time that we were talking about thousands of Ukrainian humanitarian parole cases being um, approved. We were still talking about hundreds, only like 350. I remember sending some of my clients um, Afghan humanitarian parole cases being approved total. So it is is a huge difference. And there's really no accounting for what the difference is. And they're similarly situated. So, yeah, there's, there's no explanation for why there's such a disparity between how they treat those
0: two groups. Susan, we also hear um, in in the mainstream press, and you know, I'm not saying that the reporters or the hosts talking about this, but the people that they bring on who object to uh, fast-tracking the Afghans coming through, you often hear of them saying, oh, well, we can't process them because we don't know if they have Taliban ties. We don't know. They might be terrorists. We have to do back- thorough background checks on these people. So let's have them wait in third-party countries Meanwhile, I don't hear the same conversation about the Ukrainians. How do we know that these people don't have far-right ties, for example, to the Azov group or that kind of political leaning, right, where they're they're white supremacists or nationalists? How do we know that these people, can we apply as a country the same critical thinking, the same uh, critical analysis of who's coming through our borders to the Ukrainians or do they just get a
8: pass? Yeah, they definitely get a pass, because I'll give you a good example of what you're talking about. Um, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services just recently came out with a policy decision saying that they would not so strictly construe everyday um, living activities of Afghans uh, and, and determining them to have supported the Taliban, because what they were doing is they were saying that as a as an Afghan was traveling through the country, they would have to pay um like tolls for toll roads, and that toll money went to the Taliban. And so the U.S. Immigration Services was construing that as material support to a terrorist organization.
1: And I said, Susan, it's it's and you mentioned it earlier. And I think it's something that it's it obviously it's not we can't really unpack it within this conversation. But there is something, too. And I think we need to make distinctions. So we, there are definitely racist motivations, but then there's some, you know, more subtle things like unconscious bias when it comes to people of color. Um, I, I'm a cynic. So I typically think that politics guides most of these discussions. I remember back in during the Obama administration when the almost 300 girls in um, the, the Boko Haram, where they kidnapped almost 300 girls. And I remember there was a period of time, maybe about a week or two, um, where people had their um, save our girls, you know, uh, on their hashtags and things like that. We know that even the, when the incidences happen in Haiti uh, is treated, the humanitarian crisis is treated a little differently, but I'm, you know, I wonder what do you think about, is there simply, um, you know, aside from the unconscious bias and the racism, is it really just a political motivation that guides how we view even Ukraine? Because there is a political benefit to the United States being seen as welcoming to Ukrainians.
8: I mean, I think it's all things. I think it's, you know, unconscious bias, racism, and I definitely think it's political, um, you know, nation building. Um, like in cases like Haiti, we we have a hand in the destabilization of certain countries' governments, and um, yet, yet we don't turn around and welcome the resultant migrant populations from those countries as a result of our interference. So I think it works both ways. I think like for the Ukrainians, they benefit from that our political posture and our pro- political position, um, and then it works against other nationals like Haitians. Uh,
0: like you've said, you've highlighted, and 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 I so greatly appreciate you taking time to explain this to us and walk us through what basically is a legal minefield for for immigrants because there are so many different rules for different, you know, coming from different countries, for different types of refugee programs. And uh, just there's so much to go through and, and and 30 minutes is hardly enough to scratch the surface. But at least you've highlighted for us, you know, the 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 fault lines, if you will, the cracks in the system and who falls through and and how politics actually plays into all of this, which is really sad because when we're talking about humanitarian crises, um, such as Ukraine or such as Afghanistan. Um, you, you really, you know, you're, you're very impartial about it. The cracks are there. Um, and it is what it is. Uh, Susan Pye, uh, immigration attorney and expert in this field. Thank you so much, uh, for always making time for us. Um, you, is there any place we can follow you on Twitter or something like that? Susan, I know you're on Twitter. I don't remember your handle.
8: Um, I think it's probably more illuminating for people to read some of the historical, you know, um, aspects of immigration and how we got to where we are on my website, which is strongvisa.com. Strongvisa, V-I-S-A?
0: Yes. Strongvisa.com. That is Susan Pye, immigration attorney. Thank you so much. All right, let's take a short break. When we return, we'll be taking your calls. Make sure you dial us up. 202-521-1320 we'll be back with the last few minutes of the show with your calls uh, taking your thoughts, comments, questions whatever you got Uh, call us 202-521-1320 sit tight, you're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik
3: Fault Lines Fault Lines
0: Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan sitting with guest co-host Malik Abdul and M. Reese Everson. We are taking your calls, love, hate, comments, whatever. Uh, looks like we have our first caller, Jeremy, I believe, probably in Kansas City.
10: Lawrence, Kansas. Um, Lawrence, Kansas. Whackers from Missouri, yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Sorry. Hello, Jeremy. How are you?
10: Good. How are you doing?
0: I'm okay. What's on your mind today?
10: All right. Calling from the uh, abolitionist heart of the radical middle of America, I wanted to comment on the uh, language that was being used. First of all, give it up to Reese for uh, teaching us new words. That was cool. But meanwhile, the language that is being used, for example, the divided states of America Or even fault lines itself. This is actually betrays exactly what Scott Ritter was doing, what Manila, you've done in terms of using the word, quote unquote, conflict to describe the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's very reminiscent of the so called Israel Palestine conflict, where there's actually a multi decade long military occupation that is ethnic supremacist in its origins. And then it's just termed a conflict. And this is also then displayed by the fact that the, there's a deception going around around covering up Scott Ritter's actual background. He was a warmonger for for a war in Iraq during the late 90s when the Project for a New American Century, the people that then Michael Maloof, another alleged sort of anti-war voice on Sputnik Radio, was also colluding with the neocons who hooked up with a, a militant uh, operation in Israel to get the U.S. To, to invade Iraq. One last thing is that the background of Scott Ritter also is that he was... Uh, exposed for having very close contact with the Israelis during this time, which brought him under suspicion, both the U.N.
0: Jeremy, that that group, what is it called? The New American uh, American Century? Is that what it is? Is that the same one that is uh, headed by Bill Kristol, who's also, I think, doing what's that anti-Trump one? The uh,
1: The Lincoln Project. The
0: Lincoln Project. I mean, these are the same guys that, that love war.
10: Yes, they are. And actually, the group that Michael Maloof was a part of was actually in the Pentagon. They were—there was the office— Well,
0: here's—but here's the thing, though, Jeremy. You got to remember, at the time that these men were in their official capacity— and we're winding up on. We have other callers lined up, but you got to remember that back in the '90s, when they were in their official capacities, when we went to war in Iraq, there was limit. The world didn't look the way it looks today. I'm not sure um, your age, but in the '90s, I mean, I was I was in college. Um, there was there was no internet, you know, the way it is, the way it exists today, and the the modes of information are very different. So what the people, what these men knew at the time and whether or not the new information came into them while they were in their official capacity i because i know these men personally i know that they they did speak up about it when it be, when the information became available but that stuff sometimes at that back then in the 90s as you recall sometimes it takes months like for you know a style to like for example coming from los angeles a style that's hot in la would take years sometimes to get to let's say lawrence kansas right because it just information did, didn't travel the same as it does today. So at, I, I would say I would give these guys the benefit of the doubt for their time that they were in their official capacity at the DOD um, or within the military industrial complex. They, I would trust that they they spoke up when they did. And there's only so much information that can be revealed about these men because this is stuff that happened in the 90s and they can't, it, there's no way for us to verify specifically um you know what and where happened when because it we didn't live in the information era in the 90s. So, but I, I appreciate you uh, bringing up those points. But yeah, and and you know these ties with Bill Crystal and what have you. That I mean that guy's terrible. <laughs> we also have uh oh he's one of our Rumble Room chatters. Who's your Mark in the Rumble Room? Has left the Rumble Room to join the call. Ooh, Mark. Hello. Hi there, Manila.
7: How are you? Good. How are you? Well, my back hurts. but other than that, I'm all
0: right. See, the Rumblers are different. I love the Rumblers. Oh, the Rumble Room is great. <laughs> what? What? I haven't been able to chat as much, obviously, because I'm I'm manning a lot of things over here. Uh, we're teaching our guest co-hosts on where to look, what to look for. You know, when our producers have us move along. Uh, what have you guys been chatting about in the Rumble Room? What's on your mind today?
7: Oh, me? Yeah. I don't know what these guys are talking about. You think I'm paying attention?
2: <laughs> <laughs> You've been giving them heck all morning, though.
7: You think I'm one of those guys?
1: Well, well why, do, why don't you tell us what's on your mind today?
7: Oh, okay. Well, I got this cup in the mail.
0: Oh, you got, wait, what? a complaint with uh, customer
7: service. You got the cup? I got
0: the cup. Well, okay, first, for the, the listeners that are not aware, who's your Mark? Mark in the Rumble Room. What, we did a, um, a trivia challenge day, and we put up, up for grabs, and a Jamaral Thomas astonishing mug. <laughs> and so it finally got to you because it was Muggate for a while. So whoa, you're putting in a complaint.
7: It was like a month. Yeah, what well, what's the complaint? Well, the complaint is like I wanted you on there too.
0: Oh Aww. no. Oh, Thank you, Mark. Well, see, this one, this mug, you knew what what, what was up for grabs was the Jamaral Thomas Cup. Now, if we do another uh trivia day, to get some Vixen Avera Two. We're gonna have smiles. to do a manila mug. But I don't have any cool poses like Jamaral, like. Half naked in the water.
7: <laughs> oh yeah, I'm 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 savoring this. Yeah.
0: Beat. I love it. Oh you guys are my awesome. god! No,
2: seriously, the Rumble Room is where it's at. If you are not in, and I think what is it, three hundred strong?
0: Oh, that's great. Like it's it's such a good time in there. I'm glad you finally got your mug, but the producers can hear you, so give them a message. Tea,
7: and I'm, I'm gonna uh, make myself some tea.
0: In in the Jamaro mug.
7: In the Jamara mug. I'm going to drink from this every morning.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Mark. Lauren said, I'd call in, but I hate my voice. Guys, you have to call in. Mark, thank you for transforming from just a
0: rumbler to an actual caller. Yes, nice to hear your voice. Thank you, Mark. Um, We'll let you know. We'll give you a heads up when the manila mug is up for grabs. Hey, I'm I'm
7: winning that next competition. I'm getting that manila mug. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Hey. Hey now, Mark, thank you for your call.
7: Hey, here's what I'm gonna say. Yeah. You know when Larry Bird he went to the three point contest, he walked into the locker room and he said to everybody in the locker room, "Who's coming in second?" Oh,
0: <laughs> nice. Rumble I love room. It. When see? confidence. See? It pays. It pays, you guys, to hit that rumble buttons. Get in the rumble room. We got crazy, weird trivia. <laughs> I just
2: need to let you know though, while we're he- while I have you, Mark, it's very important that I tell you this. Are you listening?
0: Oh, yes, I'm listening.
2: Michigan State basketball is number one, hands down, over any other team.
6: <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. I hate you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I'm not a fan of Bobby Knight either.
7: I'm, I'm coming to Washington, and I'm tracking you down. <laughs> Are you an
2: IU
0: fan? Is that what's happening
2: here?
7: Indiana State.
2: Woo, <laughs> IU.
7: Who's I went to Indiana State.
0: Go IU. Go green, go white all day. Actually, I'm uh, Trojan, Trojan. Indiana State, Sycamores. Thank you for calling in, Mark. Really nice to hear your voice. All right, we'll give you a heads up when we're going to do one of these uh, trivia, morning trivia. It's like a it's like bar trivia, except we did it in the morning and we're taking shots of coffee. So, Love it.
1: Love it. <laughs>
0: thanks for that. All right. We are going to leave the show right there on a fun note because we discuss such heavy topics, things that just get your fire going under your behind for this Wednesday. But hey, It is hump day, middle of the week. We got, you know, a short week. So happy Wednesday, everybody. Thank you for sitting with us through all three hours. You have been listening to Fault Lines. I am Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, their guest co-host, along with Reese Everson. Thank you to the engineer. Thank you to our producers. And thank you to everybody listening out there and all the rumblers. See y'all tomorrow. Have a good Wednesday. Happy hump day.
3: Outlines.